In the most divisive of times, the great debates rage on. Who was the best Batman? Was the book truly better than the movie? Did Han shoot first? Nerds with opinions will seek to answer life's greatest questions. Hello there, fellow nerds. You are listening to Nerds with Opinions, episode number 116. As always, I'm your host, Matt Holbin. Today on the podcast, I am joined by an esteemed panel of guests, including all returning guests, Jimmy Levins, Rachel Herzog, Amanda Murphy, and Craig Bradford, as we embark on the first in a new series on Nerds with Opinions, Adaptation Wars. And the first topic of Adaptation Wars is going to be discussing... Stanley Kubrick's The Shining versus Stephen King's The Shining novel. Now, it's in the intro of the podcast. Is the book truly better than the movie? I I ask that question, and it is an age-old question that consumers of media and lovers of literature, lovers of film, have always been asking. And... I wanted to dive further into that, and every time there will be an Adaptation Wars episode, there will be a main literary source and then an adaptation to weigh against that literary source. And on this episode, we're going to talk about The Shining, which I think is one of the most interesting novel-to-film adaptations of all time, simply because both are highly celebrated, but Stephen King absolutely hates... Kubrick's film, which is very well known. Uh, So we gathered together to discuss the differences between the novel and the film and really try to decide, is one of these better than the other? So that is the episode. Sit back, put yourself in a nice isolated place covered in snow, maybe break out a typewriter, grab an axe, or in the novel's case, a rope mallet, Because here's Jenny. We're talking The Shining Adaptation Wars here today on Nerds with Opinions. Okay, I'm back with my esteemed panel of guests going around the room. Guest host Jimmy Levins. Here's Jimmy. (laughs) And returning guests, Rachel Herzog. Hi there. Amanda Murphy. Hello. And from a long hiatus, Craig Bradford. It's your boy. And we are doing the first and what I'm hoping becomes a series uh, of Adaptation Wars, where we're going to discuss a book and then discuss the, well, I guess in this case, there's multiple adaptations, but we're going to discuss a whatever the famous, um, you know, our most well-known adaptation. And in this case, we are discussing The Shining and then Stanley Kubrick's version, uh, film version of The Shining. We might talk a little bit about the Stephen King miniseries, because I think it's it'll be prudent in terms of like the story of kind of this professional rivalry between King and uh, and Kubrick. Maybe not a rivalry, but dislike. (laughs) It's probably more apropos. So, I before we dive into this, I do want to say I got to give uh, Craig some credit for the inspiration behind this idea because um, 
you and I talked a few times about like the shining and just like horror stuff in general. And you had a pretty like, I think out of, out of more people than I've known in terms of like shining fans, you've had a, a pretty like strong opinion on the book versus the film, but then still really liked both where yeah. most folks that I've known that have like a really strong opinion on either or usually like have a preference either or. Um, yeah. And I was like, that'd be a really interesting topic to talk about on the podcast. So uh, you're the inspiration. I'm honored. Yeah. <laughs> so let's go right around. Um, let's just have some kind of opening thoughts on the book and the film. And I, I don't really want to get into which one you prefer yet. Let's, I think that's a good like wrapping up point. Um, but opening thoughts. And then I would love to know which one you consumed first. And if you can have, like, if you have a rough timeline, cause I know some people kind of, um, encounter King, like at a, probably too young of an age. And that's definitely the camp that I'm in. <laughs> but then I think, a, um, a couple of us here had just, uh, seen and or read these pretty recently. So if we want to just kind of go around and give kind of opening thoughts on both and, um, and yeah, which one you consume first, that'd be great. Starting with me. Anybody. Yeah. Okay. Um, I mean, I can, I can jump into it. Um, I mean, okay. So with the book, uh, I, I read the book much after, um, well, I guess that's the next topic, but basically I first was introduced to, to the, to the story through the, through the movie. Um, I don't, okay. I'm kind of side, side railing here hard. Uh, Opening thoughts on both the what what are we going for here? Just like do, you, do you have any like kind of opening thoughts on like before we kind of really start like breaking apart the differences? Uh, or and like yeah, and then which one did you consume first? So you answered that, but no, I, I guess not really. No, no okay. really opening thoughts. I'm just gonna yeah, I would just dive into the uh, so let let Rachel take over. Do, do you before we move? Do you have a rough idea of like when you first saw the film? Oh yeah, I was pretty young. Um, okay, I'd say I was probably twelve, maybe. Okay, so yeah, too young. Yeah, okay. yeah. <laughs> Go ahead, Rachel. Um, well, I fall into the opposite camp from yourself, where I have started enjoying horror movies much later in life, um, whereas they used to really, really terrify me as a kid, and I wouldn't watch scary movies like at all. And I watched The Shining for the first time a couple of years ago as an adult. And, uh, you know, paying taxes, going to work, all that kind of stuff. Um, and then I watched the, or no, I read the book just last October. And that was my first real uh, reading Stephen King, like a horror novel. Because um, he has some that other That was your works, first Stephen King book, period. I think so. Yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. Because I read Dark Tower, which isn't really a horror you know, falling into that. Genre, oh, okay. So you had read King. I had read, I read like the first, first Dark like, Tower. Yeah. Cause horror. I, okay, gotcha. I'm more like a fantasy sort of thing. So I was like, Oh, I'll jump in with that and didn't really continue with it. But, but yeah. So as far as like horror, Stephen King book, I'm pretty sure Shining was my first. And um, gotcha. 
yeah, it was wild. Uh, yeah, it was interesting experiencing all of it as an adult because he uh, writes children very well and, and yeah. like they're a big part of his work. So I, I don't think it would be entirely alienating to watch it as a child, but maybe too close to home because there's kids everywhere. <laughs> right. Sure. Okay. Who's next? Uh, well, I would say I'm going to put credit where credit's due in The Simpsons Shining was my first introduction to Shining, period. But between the, I mean, I, as a tip, like the, so that was kind of my first hindering of what really The Shining was and even what Stephen King was. I was introduced to Stephen King in high school. Uh, I believe it was either Different Seasons or mm-hmm. Girl Who Loved Tom Gordon was my first intro to Stephen King. Uh, of course, Star Trek Redemption, so I read the book when I found out it was based off a book. And then Stephen King kind of came in later. And then, but I would say overall, even though Stephen King came, well, The Shining inspired pop culture came first before Stephen King, the author. But in terms of between the book and the movie of the like, uh, the specific Shining, uh, I would say that I actually saw the movie first because right when I became of age to rent movies on my own at the Blockbuster here in town, I'm like, oh, I'm going to rent all these movies. And uh, so I kind of just kind of just went here, went there, just anything that seemed popular. So Shining came first. Uh, and that left a big impression. And the longest time before I really did a lot of deep diving into like book versus movie uh, adaptations, which left what's not left. And uh, so for the longest time, like, oh, I saw the movie. I don't need to read the book. I had very much that attitude, I would say, which prevented me from, I would say, reading a lot of books until much later. Uh, like the Harry Potter ones I read years after I saw the movies. Um, but for The Shining, I read The Shining, I want to say right, right around the time the Dr. Sleep movie came out. Because I wanted to read the book and Dr. Sleep kind of back to back, really fresh continuity. That is a good uh, way to consume both of those, I, I think. I did the yeah. same thing. I had already read it before, but I, I reread it in anticipation of reading Dr. Sleep and then watching the film. And then I rewatched the movie, which I've seen about three times, I would say overall in multiple different viewings uh, at home on a phone. And then of course, in the big screen uh, to each varying degree, like, but overall I would say mine's pretty much all over the place in terms of the introduction. Oh, and of course there's the TV show, but that's his own kind of weird little rabbit hole. The miniseries, you mean? Yeah, I kind of okay. came across that like after a while, back, back when I was really into Nostalgia Critic videos, uh, he reviewed it and I'm like, what is this? And so in terms of order, it was movie, miniseries, then book. Uh, uh, well, I think we'll have a quick little aside about that later because um, I've seen it too. And I think like it's it has some relevance to this conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, but OK, uh, how about you, Murphy? Um, I was familiar with Stephen King from a young age, debatably too young of an age, but I never had read The Shining um, until I just read it um, last October. And uh, I was more reading, I was reading like, I had read Pet Cemetery. I think that was the first Stephen King novel I ever read. Um, and uh, so, yeah, uh, I had actually seen the movie first a few years ago now. Uh, Rachel and I watched it together at a movie night. Um, and uh, and then, yeah, and then I read the book in October and then rewatched the movie while I was in the middle of reading the book, which was a fun experience. Um, but yeah, I, I do uh, enjoy both of them. Um, and I think there are some really interesting things for us to talk about here. So I'm excited. Awesome. awesome. 
So for me, uh, I, oh geez, I'd say very similar to Craig. I probably saw it around the same age, uh, like preteens. Um, and I, so I saw the film before I watched the movie, but I liked the film enough, uh, that, and I, oh, I'm kicking myself. I don't know what happened to this, but I, my mo- uh, mother gave me her paperback copy from the early eighties. Um, and yeah, I don't know what happened to it, but I wish I still had it. But I, so I read that. And again, so like right around the same time, like preteens and was just, just totally enamored. I think that the film was a little easier for me to wrap my head around at that age than the book was. Um, I didn't necessarily still have a preference, but that was one of, I wasn't, I don't think it was the first King that I had read. Yeah, I'm pretty certain it wasn't, but, um, you know, that was one of the first ones. And so I was just became obsessed with uh, his work and I loved the film and I already really liked horror films, but I think for me, both the book and the film are on a, uh, a higher tier than most horror in, you know, both the literary medium and the film medium. It, they're like prestige horror in my opinion and kind of have that crossover where it's not just like, Oh, well it's good for a horror film or it's good for a horror book, which I think that like, I think it's an unfair statement, but it gets attached a lot to the genre. Um, and a lot of times we talk like within genre, but I think that, this work has transcended that um, for both uh, this film adaptation and the book. So let's get right into, I think the best way to really analyze these two things is the kind of large differences. And so I've put together this list. I thought we could kind of just chip away through these and kind of talk about these differences, whether we thought one worked better than the other, or, you know, was it inconsequential did you like one or, um, over the other? So let's talk about, um, let's start with uh, Danny's Shining is really used as a tool of foreshadowing in King's book and not nearly as much in the film. Um, I would argue that, and I have this as a note further down, so we can kind of collectively talk about this. I would argue that the Shining is an abstract idea um, in both the book and the movie, but it's way more ambiguous, I feel like, in the film. Um, so let's just kind of talk about like the foreshadowing aspect where like in the book, you know, he has the, the shining come to him and like at one point, it like the entire like series of events that are going to happen. It's, you know, it's it's presented abstractly, but he sees everything that's going to happen to him and his family. Um Let's start with with that and discuss whether we like that more or less, or do you like it more ambiguous in the in the film? Well, as far as like in the film, it is left very ambiguous, and I left kind of not really understanding what was going on, but liking what I saw because it was all very visually startling, um, not necessarily pleasing, but definitely vivid. But in the 
book, I felt like I understood more about what was the shining and what was the overlook happening to the family. Because in the movie, watching it the first time, granted, I can't like really remember super clearly because those Friday night movie nights are always a little wine soaked. But, um, (laughs) but I left with like bad stuff happened and I couldn't really tell if Danny was the bad guy in the movie and he was causing all of this stuff or if it was so, but that was like a couple of years ago that I watched that movie and came away with that. But the book made it very clear that there's Danny has this power. And on the other side is the overlook and that those ghosts or um, emotional footprints or whatever you want to think of them as are what's really affecting the family. So I, it came a little bit separate in the book, King which also, I appreciated. Right. King also establishes kind of a shining level or shining hierarchy because he does, mm-hmm. he does, you know, mention like that, both Jack and Wendy have it as well, but it's it's such a, a to a smaller degree than what Danny has, and that where I I feel like Kubrick, there is a suggestion overall. If you watch that film enough, there is like this really subtle thing that like everybody in the film has a little bit of the shine. Mm-hmm. Um, but King, I feel like kind of draws those lines of like, okay, well here's the Danny shine. And then here's like Jack shine. And it's, it's a little more defined. I feel like. Well, also in the, in the movie, like I remember when I first saw it without really much context of what shining really was. I first read it as uh, it was a, without the book content, the, the, the actual Stephen King description in mind, I read it as the shining is kind of like the conduit of the lightning rod of this ominous presence in the house, because you kind of wonder like, is this house like a representation of like all these things being ignored and repressed and just festering and putrefying over time? Or is there really just inherently bad? It's always going to be bad. Like those brings things come to question. I first read as the shining was an embodiment of those things. And Danny's innocent was kind of almost like just sort of like this little catalyst that made it come out. Uh, like no one else was bringing up these things that were being ignored except for the most innocent character, which was Danny. So that was kind of my first kind of overall analysis. But then seeing the book, I mean, the whole adding on to the mythos of the Shining is its own kind of conversation as it's kind of built upon in other Stephen King books. It's its own multiverse, you could even, or like a expanded universe, really. Uh-huh. Uh, but it's almost described almost like a, it's a power. Like it's a, almost like an X-Men power to kind of like, gives some vague comparison because everyone has some varying degree. Uh, it comes out differently and it's kind of, I would say it's kind of, it's also like reinterpreted differently based on the person who has it. Cause some don't really realize it unless someone else tells them. Well, and if you, I mean, you kind of, you know, mentioned like the S- Stephen King averse or, you know, whatever you want to call it. Um, like the larger scale of his works. If you are thinking with Dr. Sleep and you know, this isn't a spoiler, but I think that he expands upon the kind of like, like you mentioned, like the X many sort of like mm-hmm. power, especially within children. Um, so I, I, yeah, I think you're, you're on, you're on the right track with that thought for sure. Yeah. That's a common thing to have. Like kids can 
feel things or experience things that humans or that uh, adults can't. And that shows up in all different kinds of stuff. Like it's the main plot of Mary, Mary Poppins right. um, and uh, just all kinds of uh, different mythologies will have that. And this is just a different way of redrawing that. Any more thoughts on the the use of The Shining as kind of foreshadowing um, in the book versus um, not doing yeah, so in the movie? I- do you um the so i i definitely think that the shining as far as it's used as foreshadowing i mean yeah it's constant throughout the book and i think it really helps give more context to danny's character and like the way he reacts in situations whereas the device like the shining being used in the movie to me it was like always just okay it was just a device that they used to allow danny to see what was happening at the overlook um the device just happened to be named. It was actually strange to me that uh, the movie, but prior to reading the book, it was always strange to me that the movie was named The Shining because it didn't feel like it had that much gravity to it, like as far as actually being explained in the movie itself. So then once I read the book, obviously the context is there and it it brought that into uh, form for me. Craig, you got any thoughts on this? Um, no, I mean, not really. That hasn't already kind of been touched on. Um, you know, I mean, I I will say that I really appreciated a little bit more in the book as far as, um, you know, a a conversation. I I believe it was, uh, Dick, um, talking, was speaking with Danny about the shining, um, you know, that, that he feels that most that like every mom has like a little bit stronger of a shining than, than most, you know, other people uh, yeah, because yeah. of that connection to their children. Um, and that, that was just, all, I don't know, I don't know what it was specifically about that. It's just kind of a sweet sentiment, um, you know, which is odd coming from Stephen King, but um, uh something that I, that I always appreciated uh, from the book is that he kind of specifically touched on that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, yeah, it, as other people have already mentioned the ambiguity um, in, you know, the, the book versus the movie. Um, I, I put specifically preferred the, the book, um, the, the explanation in, you know, I'm, I'm much more of a person that leaned toward leans towards, you know, just having everything drawn out. I like to know the rules. Um, whereas, you know, in the, in the film and, and I think used in the film to, to good effect, um, the ambiguity can work, you know, it, it, you know, it, it's not like Kubrick was just doing it just to do it. You know, he, he had maybe his reasons for, for leaving it ambiguous, um, which I can appreciate as well. Yeah. I tend to think that it makes perfect sense in terms of like the roadmap that King sets in the novel. But in terms of how ambiguous the film is as a whole, I don't think foreshadowing would have worked. It would have had to have been a completely different movie. Um, so having, you know, the shining be very mysterious and not super well-defined, uh, I think works in, in that, you know, 
narrative. Let's talk about um, the use of the term red rum, because I find that to be a, a difference between the two that doesn't get talked about enough, because if you remember back from the novel, that term's thrown around a lot. Like it's it's uh, introduced relatively early on in the book, whereas in the movie, obviously, it's it's like a big kind of twist reveal. Um, and I don't have a ton of thought on this. I think it works for both, but I'm going to be honest. I think that having it just build all the way to the end and then there's a twist reveal to like the climax, I I kind of prefer it. Um, but I don't think it, it takes away from the book having that be thrown around a little bit more. But I don't know. There's just a really powerful, uh, scary, scary moment in the movie when you get that reflection in the mirror and you're like, it says murder. <laughs> yeah. I remember the first time I thought I was like, Oh my gosh, it blew my mind. Yep. It was, uh, yeah, I, I think that's masterfully executed in terms of kind of waiting for a big reveal, you know, and, and, and Kubrick was, um, nothing short of definitely like magician style showmanship um, with his uh, directing. So that's my thought on that, but I'd love to hear everybody else's opinion on uh, the use of red rum. Well, it's kind of, it kind of plays also into the whole, the use of Tony in both the movie and the book. Cause he's kind of like, you can't jump into my other topics. Damn it. What? <laughs> you what keep do you jumping ahead to my other topics. <laughs> I'm just giving you a hard time. I, well, I, that's where I was confused. Cause like, it's like, um, but like, do it, Jimmy, I wasn't going to talk about Tony. Oh, just ahead, sort of like, say, go ahead and say what you're going to say. Well, no, I was just going to say kind of, it kind of in terms of the execution of like red rum, I'm with you, Matt, like the cinematic execution. Like I preferred that because the book, it kind of also goes into that whole quirkiness that Stephen King's known for like that whole, he'll say unusual phrasings and repetition, uh, which kind of works in that seventies era of King where it's this unfiltered, um, this unfiltered uh, just id that he kind of known for with a thousand words. And so that whole, it'll be brought later in the book, like just the whole unusual phrasings of things. So Red Run was like, that's a weird way. That's a weird word. And you kind of go on the book, kind of forget about it. And then it's, then you figure out what it is. But in the movie, I'd, I'm with you there. There's just a lot more of, I think, a, I think it, a payoff in dread. Uh, yeah, because in the book, you, 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 don't, you know, it doesn't take super long to you know, be able to work that out in your mind. It's like, oh, that's that's murder backwards where. Um, yeah, because you and, can see it. You yeah. can yes, see yes. it printed. And that's why I think okay, that yeah. the reveal in the film is is a little more effective. But Well, mm-hmm. I actually read okay. books backwards, so I figured it out real quick. <laughs> yeah, and, and I guess I glanced past the Tony note. For some reason, I thought like, oh, I guess we're not talking about it. So I assumed oh, it was well, like, we, yeah. we have to. That's a big one. Yeah, yeah no, that's, okay. we're getting there. We're getting I glanced there. right past it. Okay. Yeah, it's just a difference between uh, what works best in uh, like a reading format and what works best in a visual format. Because even the foreshadowing that we mentioned before, if we were shown that in a movie form, it would have taken out a lot of dread because we would have literally seen what was going to happen before it happened. Because they kind of needed to keep it a little close to the vest. Uh-huh. Yeah. Sure. You got to pick your creepy and how you execute it. <laughs> yeah, Definitely. Any other thoughts on this before we move on? Nope. I'm just super stoked to talk about the topiaries. <laughs> oh, we'll get there. So I I wanted to also talk about another thing that I, I don't think gets an, uh, a ton of attention when there's kind of, you know, there's discussion about the difference in these is um, how 
abstract of an idea the shining is in the book like and kind of how it manifests in in danny's mind or imagination um like the use of uh like red rum when it's first revealed is like in green fire and then he thinks like in color and everything where i i understand why kubrick didn't go down that road because that especially like pre-cgi would be so difficult to uh convey um so i don't have a lean either way on this but i thought it it was worth bringing up because uh even though it is abstract it's definitely a lot more defined like you know what we were mentioning earlier um in terms of the shining because i tend to think that even if kubrick could do something like red rum and green green fire or you know a visual representation representation of thinking and color. I don't think he would because it's, I think it would be muddying his ambiguity because ambiguity is well executed. I think, and also like like Kubrick's kind of known for similar to King, like the whole, like the, the modernity of things uh, and what's behind that. And so I think having green fire seems a little too fantastical for like Kubrick in terms of his, his, his like kind of things he likes to focus on. Also, it's super creepy to have red rum and like lipstick on a mirror, and then you get the reflection thing and green fire. I don't think would hold up as as well because you. One thing that's interesting about The Shining as a movie is it it holds up. It's still quite scary mm-hmm. yeah. uh, for me. I have a, still have a very low tolerance. I'm working on it. It's fine. Oh, it's hell, it's hella creepy. Great. <laughs> yeah, um, but I, I would say that. Kubrick chooses to think in color just in a different way and not necessarily associated with Danny, but all those rooms, the sets that he chose and used the, the green bathroom and the, um, the red bathroom, it's just a lot of bathrooms. Um, Mm -hmm. but a lot of big blocks of color. Um, so he's still thinking in color, but maybe just not the way that it is in the book. Interesting take. Thanks, man. (laughs) Let's move on to um, how King has it more defined that Danny's shining is attractive to the ghost specters, ghouls, whatever you want to call them, uh, of the Overlook. Whereas in Kubrick's version, it's just kind of we understand that Danny has some sort of power and it's it's just more of a classic kind of haunted house, like cabin fever sort of story um, where King more defines the fact that like the, it's like predestined that this family is going to go there because of this just pull that the, that the ghosts of the overlook have towards the shining. Yeah. What do we think about that? So I'll, I'll jump in on this one. Um, It's about time. I forgot you were even there. Yeah. Hey, I said some things like five uh, minutes ago. <laughs> um, so I this one, I mean, I don't know if we're specifically discussing like preferences um, on each of these talking. Oh, yeah. No, if, if you have okay. a hard lean, give it to me, baby. Um, so I in this one, I mean, I definitely prefer the, the book. Um, and I, okay. I think, you know, we'll start to see a theme here develop. Um, but um in the book, I it, I don't know if he explicitly states it, but it's definitely much more like um, 
hinted at at the very least uh, that the ghosts are becoming, or the, the specters, the spirits of the hotel are becoming more powerful because of Danny's shine. Oh, he does um, more than hint at it. it yeah. It's pretty, it's pretty defined. I, like, I feel like, like I said, I can't, I couldn't quite remember if he specifically mentioned it or if it was just kind of like they, they led you to the conclusion or something yeah. like that. But, um, but yeah, that was something that I really um, just at, in terms of presentation, I preferred between the two. Um, Cause it, again, it just kind of gives that, that like, okay, here's the rules. Um, and, and then also, you know, basically that's what allows the ghost to actually physically hurt Danny um, physically, you know, manifest alcohol essentially for, for Jack to consume um, and, you know, otherwise, otherwise impact the characters and their physical surroundings and so on. Um, so definitely between the two. Uh, and again, I, I think that Kubrick had a, a, he had a reason to, to display it differently. Um, you know, he, he wanted, he set out to accomplish a, you know, uh, or to tell a different story. Um, so I think that Kubrick's use of, of the shining, um, was still, you know, was still done very well. Uh, but just in terms of, of presenting the story and the character, the impact on the characters' lives, uh, I preferred the book here. Um, yeah. All right, fair. Well, it's like kind of, let's see, because I know, I know that this will be touch-based later, so I'll try to like save those thoughts for later. But like I, overall, it's like I, I'm both compelled by both, uh, like, I'm going to say author because I mean, like Kubrick is kind of the author of this shining in a way. So like both oh, like how different sort, it is. I, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. So both, I mean, so I'm just gonna say author just for some context of why I'm referring it to both, but like in terms of just what makes them want to describe the power and then like the ghost in terms of like what they think it represents. I mean, both equally as compelling. I mean, I think it's in the end, just one just benefits one cinematically and one benefits the other in the sense of like, story length and like just kind of benefits the, the text approach versus so i think both have equal merit anybody else rachel you look like you're wanting to hop in there oh i was just grooving i'm thinking about uh just different things that i want to uh touch on but i agree with everybody Okay. <laughs> yeah, I, I got my notepad out because yeah. like it's like hearing everyone else kind of talk. You're like, oh right, that'll kind of tie into another point we're gonna bring up. Like I'm gonna bring up later, so it's kind of yeah. trying to piggyback off mutual ideas. Mm -hmm. There was a bit where I forgot that the ghosts were made stronger by Danny, and I, I was thinking, oh, is it just a oh this kid can see us? It's showtime. Everybody pull out all the stops. But it it sounds like it's more like <laughs> yeah, no, it was it was. I mean, I mean, there were definitely off was, of him. there definitely was that element like. The hotel wanted Danny. Like they're like, we need Danny. <laughs> yeah, bring out the party elevator. Yeah. Let's go. Let's but, go. Yeah. But yeah, they they were made more strong by Danny's. You know, they were siphoning power from Danny's shine. Yeah. yeah. Okay, that makes way more sense. I don't think that would have worked as well in Kubrick's version because, and we'll we'll get into like the the Jack differences. Um, but with mm -hmm. the decisions he made with the characterization of Jack. And that the ghosts and the, you know, the hotel 
is possessing him and he is the conduit of evil and is like the biggest threat to his son rather than the hotel. Um, I, I don't know. I don't think you could have, could have done both um, because mm-hmm. Kubrick makes a very like decisive, you know, sort of push to that he does with uh, the Jack character. And I know that's what, <laughs> that's one of the reasons that King hates his, his adaptation. Uh, but oh. ju- just, yeah, that yeah. makes sense. Oh yeah. There's I'll, I'll make a little note on a few things that like, I know for a fact, cause I've heard uh, interviews with King uh, that he's come out and be like, I hate that. I hate that. So when those things come up, I'll, we'll, we'll do a little, a uh, little fun fact. Um, okay. Yeah, I'm, I'm interested Stephen to know King if, hates this. if his opinion has softened over the years or. <laughs> oh, absolutely not. He has like a hole in the intro to Dr. Sleep. He yeah. Bar- he buries this movie again. And like in, and basically kind of, and kind of justifies like burying it um, yeah. for why he would even do a sequel to the shining. And like, <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Craig, I don't think that's softened at all. Yeah. What part of this man's work makes you think that he's capable of softening? I don't know. <laughs> I just, hey, people change. Okay. <laughs> but maybe Stephen King's not a person. Maybe he's a he's, lizard person. You know, he's eternal. Yeah. He's also got an interesting, space like, turtle. <laughs> a space eternal. turtle. Oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> well, but, yeah. Well, space, space turtle. That's, a, that's it. Yeah. That's, an, at, uh, that's another episode of Adaptation Wars. Yeah. <laughs> we'll, oh, yeah. We'll, we'll, go, we'll discuss the space Bro, turtle at some point. We might, like, if we're going to do Adaptation Wars on it, I think we're going to need to be fucking drunk because, like, the, the book difference, there's some stuff that, like, I think thank we just God they didn't ever do in an adaptation. I think we just over the, one, the part that you're thinking about, man. <laughs> well, <laughs> like, even we'll King just, we'll wants to edit down a lot of his books. And honestly, I, have y'all, like, actually looked at the movies that Stephen King says are his favorite adaptations and his least favorite ones? It's actually pretty interesting because then you look at the yeah. legacy I'll of those. Look that up. Yeah. Yeah. It, it is very interesting because, and it's also interesting how vocal he is because you know obviously there are some authors that you know have come out if there's a bad adaptation of their work and they've you know maligned it or whatever but it's probably not as um as to such a degree that king has has done but i there's nobody that's been adapted as many times as he has um you know and i i I think that there has been a lot of like really bad Stephen King adaptations. So, uh, and part of me kind of likes that he cares about his work that much um, because he Mm -hmm. also will put movies over if he feels like that they nailed it or whatnot. So I think that uh, people who don't watch wrestling uh, listen to this podcast. What does to put one over refer to? Oh, that's not, that's more than just a wrestling term, but yeah, that's to like, you know, (laughs) to give, give credit to, um praise yeah yeah he hypes them up yeah uh before we move on amanda did you have any thoughts on this last you know ghost of the overlook uh no i think craig pretty some he summed up my uh my opinions pretty well so i'll stick with those thanks craig well how about this um how about you lead us with differences in how tony is portrayed so i'm sure everybody's got an opinion on that because they're <laughs> quite different <laughs> Yes. Uh, like Tony, for, like Tony hardly existed in the movie out, outside of being just like 
kind of uh, almost comedic relief. Like, I mean, for me anyways, watching the, watching the film. Um, yeah. The little thing talking through his finger and like, like it, it seemed like a very like easygoing part of the shining, the movie. It was like the, he wanted to find a place to put in some lightheartedness. And I guess he used Tony for it. That's how yeah, it came off to me a lot. Um, in the book, it was uh he was an actual character and an intriguing character that uh, pushed, helped push some of the plot along and was kind of unfolding. He, he was acting as that foreshadowing uh, yes. while Danny was having the shine and, and, and seeing him and he was kind of guiding Danny through all of that. And so it, it brought him into an actual character or he created him as an actual character. And that made a lot more sense as to why, he, he was even a thing um in the in the movie yeah it was just kind of an in passing insignificant part when having like uh tony be a little more of like uh and it kind of added on to the whole fleshing out of the whole shining uh power that the book does a really good job versus the movie because like it kind of plays up that whole um oh like people with the shining can communicate with one another as as we've seen with dick and uh like danny like, um, but it, in terms of like the movie, like uh, it's done such a vague way, like where I'm like thinking, okay, which is who's who's speaking through whom now? Like, what is the like, is like it's a byproduct of the house or the byproduct of Danny? Like, and so, I, and so they so they're so different, but like, um, I, yeah, no, I remember reading the book and I'm like, who's this Tony character? I was just sort of like, I'm like, this is so different than what I'm used to with the movie. And it was kind of fun to like see, uh, well, of course, Sting, uh, Stephen King gives so much like uh, page time to like Tony. Uh, it's just a conversation character between him and Danny. And I'm like, oh, wow, this is like a lot more lengthy than I was expecting we would get of him. So Speaking of foreshadowing, oh, the... Uh, now, granted, this was four months ago, but multiple characters in the book say, you know who Tony is, right? Or like, you know where he got that name, right? Okay. And then they kind of reveal it later. I really appreciated that. It was kind of like the way parents talk about their kids and kind of letting them sort themselves out. And then also having it be another source of foreshadowing that wasn't just, well, I guess it is uh, Danny's powers, but it's like a different aspect of it. I, I don't know. I associate like Tony and the shining as almost two different things, but. So I think Tony is a manifestation of the shining mm-hmm. where like the, sh- the shining is such a great power, but then he, uh, Danny is such a young child that. Cause I mean, are we, we going to get right into it? That, that Tony is his older self. Yeah. Like okay. Tony's his middle okay. name. Okay. okay. I'm just, okay. I wasn't sure if we were going <laughs> to, if we were going to go there. So. So yeah, Tony's, which is definitely not established at all in the in the film. But I I always when that's kind of when you when you understand that in the book, you're like, oh, Tony's his older self. I took it as Tony is a manifestation of The Shining, and you know it can like manifest his older self that kind of has like a a future knowledge and is kind of like he's the protector, the, the, you know, and, and trying to guide without completely, but I don't think his, his powers are such that he can completely influence, um, 
what happens, but he can kind of guide and push things along and protect is, is how I take it. But it's like a communication thing. Like uh, Danny reaches out to Dick using the shining by yelling at him. Yeah. And then that causes Dick's whole plot line to unfold. Cause he's just coming for that family. Right. Um, but yeah, something like that. I, I tend to think that I, I love the, the portrayal of Tony in the book. And however, I think as soon as you see how Tony is portrayed in the miniseries, you're like that. That's why Kubrick didn't do that because oh, it's no. such a, a that's a that's a big concept that works way better on paper than especially if you're talking about The Shining being made in 1980. And I think that it was a really good idea on Kubrick's part to go. That's a fucking crazy concept to try to like to portray cinematically. Yeah. And let's lean into what we're already what we're doing here, which is creepy atmospheric. And I think it works really well where you're like, what the fuck is the first time you say like, what is that kid doing? Why, what is this? Why is he talking like this? (laughs) And it's, if you think about it in terms of, you know, kind of realism where, you know, I mean, Rachel, you have a, a young kid, so you get this. I don't know if Lincoln has imaginary friends, but um, having been around little kids myself that had imaginary friends, or I remember my parents talking about like my brother and I have imaginary friends. I, well, I, I, did your daughter do this, uh, Craig? Like have imaginary friends? I, mean, I remember my parents no. saying it was really creepy when my brother and I would did be like, oh, I'm, ta- I'm talking to Larry or whatever. And then yeah. they'd be like, oh, really? Uh, okay. So I always kind of feel like when I um, first watched this movie that that was more what Kubrick was going for, that like everything that he's doing is just it just adds to like the creepiness and little kids in horror films are creepy already. Um, so, you know, with, with him just kind of like going to these weird trances and talking like this, it's it just adds to the, you know, the already kind of like atmospheric ambiance that he's trying to put together in that movie. And that's really one of the strong suits of the film. Um, so that's how I kind of take his decision uh, with that. And so I think King's version is better narrative wise. And Kubrick's version is better for a film adaptation because, yeah, they... <laughs> they tried to do Tony in the miniseries exactly how it's is on the pages and it oh it's fucking whack like it's just basically <laughs> like a teenage boy just floating in the air and he's like daddy daddy and he's, and he's yeah. like oh it's so mm. goddamn weird it does not work it falls very flat and it's kind of it's if you think like oh this is kind of a funny comedic thing a fucking 13 year old boy floating in the air and like with soft lighting so he's kind of like ethereal it's it, oh it's terrible <laughs> it, 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 i think it's so funny yeah. that kubrick was the Doesn't first work. he kubrick foresaw it all he all he was the first to realize that like oh there's some things that don't quite work well because i think until that point like besides carrie salem's lot and something else like uh shining was a pretty like relatively like like it was before the whole notion of the adaptation craze of king so it's just kind of yeah. funny to see that like that, oh, this is the, we're drawing the line here, King. Like, we're going to filter these things out. And now it's more of a common thing. Like, oh, yeah, some of that doesn't quite 
translate very well. Uh, and I will probably get more on the TV show later because I have a lot more thoughts I want to share about that. Let's talk about uh, Danny's arm injury, which is a, this is another one I think that maybe a lot of people, you know, wouldn't bring up. But to me, like, I, I feel like it's a, dis- a a big enough difference that I wanted to talk about it. In the book, broken arm, he's got a full on cast. In the film, it's they mentioned that he had a dislocated shoulder. Both are bad injuries. Um, there's something to me about when I read in the book that his arm was broken and he had the cast on. I don't know if that's maybe just like, the, you know, because of the breaking of a bone and having to have it casted up. Um, something about that seems more horrific. I don't know why. That's just that was my my take on it. Um, I've had both injuries. They both fucking suck. I would say that, that you know, depending on how bad your shoulder is uh, dislocated, they, they could be pretty equal. Um, but I don't know. I guess just like thinking of a, of a little child and how badly I think you can dislocate somebody's shoulder easier than you can break their arm. So I would think of like what Jack had to do to break a bone. It, it seems a little more horrific. So that's. That's my take on that, but I would love to know if anybody else had a thought on this. Yeah, I uh, I totally agree with that, and I think that's why it seems more like visceral is because it's his father doing it to him, yes. and to think like, oh, dislocating a shoulder. I mean, like my cousins accidentally dislocated his kid's shoulder, swinging him around by his arms before, you know. So like nothing intending to harm him. So the thought that like Jack went far enough and kept going to the point where he actually broke his son's arm like that that itself is uh, horrific when also having a visual embodiment of that that past damage the cast is kind of like a reminder in the household that oh right this happened it's just like constantly in their face like they can't ignore it right and it actually ends up to be kind of a catalyst for jack attempting to improve himself um and part of that was having that reminder whereas you don't get any inkling of that from the from the movie like jack is the bad guy yeah i thought it was odd that they made that choice to make the dislocated shoulder in the movie it felt like um like they were kind of calming that down a little bit or maybe um trying to humanize Jack a little bit, whereas other choices in the movie I would not read as humanizing in any way, shape or form. Um, And I, I should probably mention this. I listen to books much more often than I physically read them. So when I was listening to that part um, and it talks about the, the snapping noise of the kid's arm, I had to stop because it was very, um, uh, just the way it was written and talking about that like soft snap noise over and over again. Cause he repeats himself kind of a, a little bit as Jack's thinking about it. Yeah. Yeah. That was uh, really rough. Whereas a dislocated shoulder is just not going to have the same effect. So it was one of the few times where uh, book Jack was gnarlier than movie Jack. Anybody else got any thoughts on this? Let's talk about the furnace of it all. Mm. Uh, the furnace is a really interesting plot device that Kubrick, for the most part, just ignores. It's it's mm-hmm. it's. Uh, I think if this film wasn't as good as it was f- with every other thing, the Chekhov's gun that is the furnace would fucking drive me crazy because yeah. he shows it. 
He shows it, mm-hmm. you know, so it's not like, oh, there is no furnace in, in the hotel. He shows it. He does a completely different thing where Wendy basically attends to it, um, mm-hmm. which I think that was a decision to make it clear that she's the only one doing anything around that fucking place. And because he's portraying Jack in a very different way. But um, obviously in the book, Jack is supposed to be attending to it does um, until he forgets to do in the end, once he really slipped into madness and it leads to his and the overlooks demise. So it is such a huge plot device. And, you know, I mean, King really, I think is, uh, he is a writer that sticks to Chekhov's gun where it's like, if I introduce this, you better be fucking certain it'll come back. Even if it is the most subtle thing, Um, and this is not subtle. I mean, it's, he, there's so many scenes where Jack is down there and he's kind of beginning to slip into madness, you know, but he's he's checking on the furnace or he's down in the basement rummaging around in, um, the boxes and the records of the overlook. And the furnace is always there, whether or not it's right at the forefront, it's, it's a plot device that is recurring very, very often. And so when it does happen, it's there is a nice payoff where you're like, oh, he fucking forgot the furnace. And it's not it's not heavy handed where it's like, OK, well, we could see that coming from a mile away. It, it's it's um, he executes it well. Yeah, I, I what, kind of liked and I don't know if it was intentional or um, whatever, but I liked the, you know, at, at the, you know, basically the, the climax um, that the furnace um, you know, exploding was a good representation of, of Jack's, you know, madness. You know, the furnace had reached its its capacity and was was bursting at the seams. It was the same thing, same thing with Jack's sanity. Is that at that point, you know, because at that specific moment in the book, you know, Jack was just about to kill his son. Um, you know, and that is the peak madness that you know that anybody can have really to to kill another human being, but even more so for your own, own your your own child. It's like that is the peak of, of madness. And so I think it was a good, um, you know, a good storytelling device to kind of say like, hey, <laughs> this man has completely lost his marbles. Um, and uh, I think a, a great uh, storytelling device. That's really cool, Craig. I like that. That's what I'm here for. <laughs> Yeah, and definitely Kubrick definitely throws that idea, you could say. Um, but like, uh, but I, I, <laughs> oh my god, <laughs> yeah, you it, can't see it on the podcast, but Rachel's booing. It was too hot. It was too down. hot. To, it was too hot to handle, probably in the adaptation. Um, oh, let me think of one more. Let me think of one more. No, uh, yeah. anybody else have any thoughts I'll, on this? I'll mute myself. Only only bad jokes every every five minutes. <laughs> Yes, that ending was very explosive. <laughs> Huzzah! Let's uh, <laughs> let's move on to uh, when in the story Wendy reads Jack's play, which in the book super early on because that's not really used as a plot device in revealing his madness. Whereas Mm-mm. in the movie, it's definitely kind of leading into the climax, and that is like a plot device in revealing his madness. I'm gonna go ahead and say it. I like the movie version way better because that oh, yeah. all work yeah. and no play makes Jack a dull boy is so fucking iconic. And yeah. 
those shots that like those like straight from the ground up like to her reaction, her face and then down like while she's like rifling through them. And the how the text is, changes ugh. and like you see that they're structured in sentences and then you see that they're all caps all across the page mm-hmm. and then you see that they're like split up into chunks and paragraphs and then he's everywhere. Like, making, like, pat- like geometric patterns with the typing and like, yeah, oh, that was- he got creative. Uh, there's also kind of like this unintended or maybe intended pun that I think kind of plays with Kubrick saying this is going to be diff because, you know, in the movie, it's a book in the book, it's a play. So all work, no play. There's literally no play. So I almost read that as like Kubrick kind of making another add on of like, oh, this is going to be a lot different than what your book was. Hmm. Uh, knowing how he worked, I'm sure you're probably right. That was probably yeah. intentional. It, I didn't it was, even, I've never even thought of that, but you're. Yeah, it's kind of like, I'm like thinking like, oh, does Kubrick super like puns? If so, I like him more. But yeah, I, I absolutely love that reveal. I think it's one of my favorite things uh, about uh, the film. And in going back and reading the book again, it I'm going to just say it. It felt very like far less uh, impactful to me when it's like, oh, yeah, she 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 checks it out. Cool. Moving on. And I'm like, yeah. oh, but I, I don't know. Like, so that I think is a difference where. That is so based in the cinematic medium of, you know, cinematography and editing. And it's just of this perfect marriage of amazing cinematography and amazing editing. And I, I tend to think I don't know how well that would have worked um, in a literary medium because it's definitely very dependent on how visual her realization uh, of his madnesses and how visual yeah, and, in like the typed word. And then kind of, you know, the, the frantic, you know, turning of the pages. Yes. You know, as she's, you know, she reads it and then, you know, you, you can see the, the realization set upon her face and, and then, you know, and, uh, you know, like props to Shelley Duvall, she killed it. Um, mm. But yeah. in you know, just the, the flipping through the pages and it's the same thing over and over and over and over again, you know, thousands of times. Um, yeah, expertly done. I feel like, and and I agree that like that particular scene, her reading the uh, book in the case of the movie is, is very well done. I think the equivalent to that in the, uh, movie or sorry, in the book is, um, that Stephen King wrote, <laughs> um, is, uh, uh jack flipping through all the records in the furnace room um and it's just that because they don't really address that room as much and and those records and stuff as much in the book or in the movie Mm -hmm. um like that's where they're drawing that equivalency as far as like it's more in the book it's more the dawning on the reader how mad jack is going Whereas they're using Wendy as that like medium, that in between in the book, yeah. in the movie. Yeah. Jesus, sorry. That's a good example of how a director can like cherry pick the pieces of a work that they're adapting and choose what's going to be most visually arresting or what's going to be most just even effective, what's even going to read. Because Tony is going to read differently. Yeah, there's it's it's, a really good. It's very cherry picked example of this. Yeah, because there's some stuff that this couldn't have been accomplished at the time, or would have read as corny, or it just wouldn't have happened at all. Yeah. Let's talk about uh, Jack's relationship to both Danny and Wendy, which is far more. It's 
far more loving and less cold than uh, in the book in comparison to the film. And really the main problem in their family is his alcoholism. Mm -hmm. And in the, the film there's, there's kind of a coldness and an aloofness in Jack towards his family from the jump. He seems perturbed by, by them immediately. Uh, yeah. Let's talk about those differences and if anybody has any preferences. Um, I mean, <clears throat> you know, it's just, I mean, as, as you kind of mentioned, um, it just, it's much more apparent in the book that Jack actually does love Danny and Wendy, you know, individually, like there's many moments throughout the book where he, you know, it's like specifically described how much he loves his family. Um you know, and then, and then on the flip side of that, you know, when it's, when the book is um, reading out from Danny's perspective, it's obvious that Danny thinks the world of his dad, like, you know, at that point, like, like every kid at that age, you know, their parents are gods to them. Um, and you, in King, Stephen King masterfully kind of portrays that, that childlike perspective of of his parents um and his dad specifically there's even a quote that says something to the effect of like um he loved his mother but he was his father's son like so they he makes a point of even kind of saying like that he has a uh danny has a closer relationship to his father than even his mother yeah yeah so i i think that just you know in terms of you know just the stark differences between the two um, yeah, it's it's very much it's very much apparent that the love is is abound between the two, uh, between you know, and we're really all three uh, characters. And then that makes the book that much more sad when things unravel or yeah. um, explode, um, because you care more about their relationships. Whereas in the movie, Jack Nicholson just kind of starts out in interview mode where he's trying to impress his potential new employers. And then he doesn't seem to really leave that. Like you think that's, Oh, he's just putting this on so he can get this job. And then it just kind of stays that way. And so I always think when I'm watching the movie, like, Oh shit, that's just his face. Yeah. That's how he is all the time is he's not really present with his family. And then he degrades further. So he never really has a great starting point to begin with. And I should note that, um, his familial relationship is a major sticking point of King's. Um, obviously, I, I could and I could totally see that because he he wrote it with a lot more love and care amongst their family than what ended up being portrayed in Kubrick's film. And yeah, so he's not a fan of that. <laughs> yeah, and I totally get that too because if I were the author of The Shining, I probably would also have similar complaints because. That's the thing about Jack's relationship to his family is in the book, it makes him a sympathetic character. It's what allows you, like mm -hmm. what uh, Rachel was saying, allows you to take care about that relationship and want to, you want Jack to become a better person for his family, the same as he wants to become a better person for his family. But you lose all of that in the movie. Um, and because the relationship isn't there, neither is any sympathy for Jack Torrance's character. Yeah, in the movie, right off the bat, they're very much afraid of uh, Jack. Like, you, it's not fully mm -hmm. like acknowledged. It's very subtle. It's very internalized. While in the book, everything that we kind of get from Jack in terms of his fears and his insecurities is also internalized. And 
I think a big play into we we've kind of touched base on why King dislikes the approach to the family is Jack's kind of a stand-in for Stephen King in a sense. So seeing and oh. his relationship to his family because he was dealing with alcoholism as well at the time. So I almost wonder on some sub, on subconscious level, like King took it very personal the retextualizing of the relationship because it's like that's me. You're changing. I'm not the person that this Jack Torrance is uh, that you're portraying in the movie. Mm-hmm. So I've heard a very interesting um, critical analysis of how much care he put into writing Jack that, um, and I don't necessarily agree with this, but I think it is something interesting to bring up at this point um, where I was listening to this podcast. Um, there's a whole Stephen King podcast that I would recommend to everybody listening and you folks on here called the King cast that um, ah, yes. Fangoria produces and um, they, had a guest on that brought up the point that they felt that King um, has far too much affection and care for Jack Torrance uh, for, you know, a, a guy that ultimately, you know, was trying to kill his family. Um, And, Again, I don't know if I agree with that, but I do think that it is an interesting analysis because, yeah, you're totally right, Jimmy. You can tell that there is a lot of King in in uh, Jack Torrance, and he's very w- well known for kind of putting himself into his characters, especially um, his characters that are authors. You know, it's kind of like, oh, well, that that's kind of, yeah, that's the that's kind of the literary embodiment of, of Stephen King. And... Um, and so, yeah, I wonder if maybe that if you are on the right track there, Jimmy, where it's like he does have some ownership over Jack and Jack's story because he kind of feels like it reflects his own story. Um, but yeah, that casting was always interesting to me as well, because Jack Nicholson is not necessarily the most sympathetic of people um, and or not people like, I don't know him personally, but like he just kind of, for me, poor Jack Nicholson reads as a bit of a creep and I wouldn't think of him as like a loving family man sort of role. So when I heard we were doing this, I, um, I thought, well, maybe that's just my bias because I have, as long as I've been alive, this movie has existed and Jack Nicholson has been Jack Torrance and all of the, um, you know, cultural bits that people have taken from this movie and and put into pop culture, and it's just always been there. So maybe I'm just internalizing mm. that. And he's actually more sympathetic. So I called my mom, and I said, "Mom, I have a very important question for you. Uh, <laughs> did you ever find Jack Nicholson attractive?" And she goes, "No, no, mm-hmm. no." I said, "Okay. Have you ever heard of anybody like around your age or peers, coworkers, anything who have found Jack Nicholson to be sympathetic?" And she goes, "Oh, no." No. So, so I called somebody who is similar to me, like taste wise, but maybe has a different life perspective. And, and I felt very validated by that conversation with my mother. And then, uh, and then she's like, okay, I got to go. Great talk. (laughs) Uh, Well, Nicholson brings a very much an edge to that role. Cause I I think he's the, the, the guy for, to be the family man, he, mm-hmm. like he is an intense actor. And I think that's what yes. they wanted. Well, that point in his career, like this is, 
you know, post Oscar win for one for the cuckoo's nest. This is post, um, like for Chinatown, uh, Chinatown, uh, five easy pieces, like, in, uh, easy writer where he's trying to retextualize kind of the whole, what is the American leading man, the, the, the actor. And really, I mean, the biggest point was Kubrick really wanted to work with Nicholson. They were supposed to do a Napoleon movie together where Napoleon was played by Nicholson and of course that was scrapped and they reused the costumes for Barry Lyndon in 75. Uh, but like, because he was never used, this was sort of like, I don't know. I, I don't quite know for a word why like Kubrick settled on Nicholson, but like, it, it was of course, like we kind of expressed, he wanted to kind of bring out some sort of sense of like menace uh, and edge. But then it's also, it's like, I think it's just deep down, just like a, a lifelong like collaboration they've wanted to do for so long. This was really the only thing that kind of came out of it. Hmm. I think it's a good transition into uh, let's talk about uh, the differences in Jack's alcoholism and his dip into madness, because we're, we're kind of already talking about mm-hmm. that, which is like the intensity in which Nicholson approached this role. Um, in terms of like the dip into madness. The, so these two things are like major sticking points for Stephen King. Um, and probably the dip into madness is the biggest one because he hates the fact that uh, Nicholson comes in at probably about like a six or a seven. Like he's already like mm-hmm. fairly nutty and then takes it to like an 11 by the end of the film. Whereas in the book, obviously it's like, it's a, it's a lot more subtle and it's a lot more of a slow burn and that descent. It, uh, it even has kind of like peaks and valleys where once they kind of hit the gas in the film, like he's just full on, Let's 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 pop those eyebrows and go yeah. full Nicholson. <laughs> and, um, it, but it it works for the trajectory of of the film. Uh, but I can see where if you did have a lot of care behind your character, and then you see you know mm. this guy just like, all right, let's go fucking nuts immediately in, yeah. into this movie. You'd be like, dude, are you kidding me? Like, there's no subtlety that to that at all. Um, and then of course, then the alcoholism is. I don't want to say an afterthought in the film, but it is definitely not nearly as important as, as a plot device as as the book. So I would love yeah. to know everyone's thoughts yeah. on on that. Well, in the in the movie, it's almost more of a characterization. Like it kind of it, it's used to highlight so many of the good like mannerisms that Nicholson can do, which is of course the, the madness always, or the alcoholism. Uh, the alcoholism, like yeah. uh, in terms of like. I mean, because like the way he holds the glass, like Nicholson's very methodic and very precise in his movements. He likes subtlety. And that's kind of why people like casting him. I mean, of course, the madness as well. I mean, if you look at the casting lists of people they considered, they dwelled too much on which actor can handle madness really well. They had De Niro, Nicholson, Williams, and a few other like odd hats mixed in. But like in the handleization of alcoholism, like, I mean, I mean, like in case y'all didn't know, Stephen King was a recovering alcoholic. Um, I don't know. It's a big shocker. Um, but like, it, it, it's a lot more of like, it almost like the, the way alcoholism is handled uh, in the book. It's almost like a metaphor for the furnace as well. It's, a, it's kind of like something that's slowly building and being kind of ignored and neglected. Yeah. And in the movie, and if like you're it's not a, keeping it in check. Yep. Yeah. Yep. 
Yeah. And, and in the movie, it's a lot more of just a characterization trait. Like, oh, yeah, just because Nicholson holding a scotch looks pretty cool cinematically. But like it, it's not really used to really flesh out the dread. I think they lean a lot more into the madness yeah. than the alcoholism for like this looming repressed threat. I really liked how so the, the alcoholism or, or the, I guess like more specifically the constant nag of alcohol of being an alcoholic um for jack was very well um presented by king because i felt myself like every any time you know it was described that jack was was rubbing his lip you know mm-hmm. uh in the book like that was like an a, like a, a recurring thing anytime it was mentioned mentioned in the book like i felt this kind of like pang um and it, it was just, it was something I hadn't really experienced in a book before where, you know, I had like, I, I felt like, um, a, like a tick. That's kind of a manifestation of his like withdrawals and exactly. Yeah. yeah. And then, um, you know, again, you know, and, and as it's, as it's been, as it has been mentioned, um, it was just kind of like much less, uh, of a, of a device in, in the movie. Um, so, yeah, I mean, just, yeah, specifically that anytime that came up, I was just like, I felt like, like Jack, I felt his repression or the repression of the alcoholism, um, which again was just, it, it was amazing. Something I hadn't really uh, experienced. Well, and I think avoiding the alcoholism in the movie is another way that Kubrick was avoiding making those deeper connections between Jack and his family, because the alcoholism kind of gives more context to his behavior uh, leading up to the events happening at the Overlook um, and some of his behavior in the Overlook as well. Um, So like it avoiding that allows him to avoid the larger subject there that is that backbone and, and the reason why Jack is making the strides he's the moves he's making and even going to the overlook in the first place. It's um, and I kind of noticed this in terms of like the use of alcohol in the movie versus the book is like the whole, the whole, like right when he takes that first sip of alcohol, it's like everything kind of just goes South from there in a sense. Like it's almost like the alcohol was literally both literally and metaphorically the conduit for essentially I mean, more to talk about the madness later, but like for it to kind of like uphold. So it's like, I felt like in that one solid movement was, I guess, Kubrick's attempt to summarize all the book was trying to do, but so much more subtle that I feel like that can kind of get mixed in terms of just really fleshing out a full-fledged character using the alcoholism as kind of, I guess, a a description factor to make it a little more full-fleshed, but like, I don't know, that's the only thing I can really think of in terms of really the most the film kind of utilized the alcohol and addiction theme. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I honestly don't have a lean either way because I think that in, well, I think I can compartmentalize these into like what both of these guys were trying to do mm-hmm. and what King was trying to do. Having the alcoholism be such a strong theme and that madness kind of have this slow, you know, burn that goes into this peak. I think that totally works. It tracks, it makes sense. And in, you know, the, the film that Kubrick was, was trying to make, honestly, I think like, especially with how much of a prevalent theme, the alcoholism is in the book. 
I think that would have really steered his film off the tracks because for, for all, all the reasons that you all mentioned. Um, and there's a lot of time spent on it in the book where I think really it'd been a longer film. Um, and it's kind of a, a nice tight cut. I cannot imagine that movie being any longer, especially diving further into, into kind of the, the day-to-day struggles that are in the book, because that's a lot of like inner dialogue. Um, and you know, we're in like Jack's thoughts, that's, as we know, very hard to portray, um, in a film adaptation. So, um, so yeah, I guess I can compartmentalize them. I'm like, okay, well, this is its thing. This is, uh, you know, and this, the novel's its own thing. So I, I don't have a lean either way. I think they both work, uh, if you look at it like that, but I understand that Stephen King cannot look at it like that. And he's like, that's bullshit, dude. <laughs> uh, let's talk about Wendy's helplessness. Cause this is another real major sticking point that, uh, King has with this, where he feels like Kubrick portrayed Wendy as a completely helpless character. And, um, and he feels that that was not how he portrayed her in the, in the book. And I tend to agree with that. Um, I do think that it, the byproduct of having her be so helpless in the film is maybe one of the most, you know, stunning bits of acting that we've ever seen. But, uh, you know, we all know kind of what came out of that. Um, and I don't, I don't know if it was, I don't know if it was worth it. Um, but what what is uh, what do you all think of this? Do you think that having her be a stronger character worked better, or you know, did you do you like that you know she's definitely a little more victimized in the in the film? I mean, I I don't know. I and, and I mean, there there definitely is a difference in in the two, but I wouldn't say she's like totally helpless in in the film. Um, you know, she fends him off with the baseball bat, you know, and then I'm saying in the, in the, in the scale versus the book, she's far more helpless. Yeah, for, for sure. Yeah. But, um, I, I do, I do think that there was at least a decent adaptation or a decent representation of her, um, you know, maybe just in that one moment in a couple following, um, that the, the strength of, of, you know, of being a mother, you know, helped her um incapacitate jack at least for a little bit um and yeah i think that just in terms i mean overall preference between the two i still much preferred the book um but i can at least appreciate maybe what kubrick was going for uh which is to you know just display that that sense of helplessness um so not so much as to you know diminish Wendy as, you know, as a, um, as a character, but more so to just kind of display how helpless one could feel against, you know, it's an imposing menace like Jack, you know, movie Jack, um, when you're isolated out in the the middle of nowhere with somebody that could very easily hurt you. Um, And he has an ax instead of a mallet. Yes. And as Jimmy mentioned before, they are talking about, um, or you get the sense that that 
movie Wendy and movie Danny are a little bit afraid of movie Jack a little bit. Yeah. Whereas in the book, there's more of a, a loving relationship and a little of give and take and um, maybe not a situation where you would be quite so easily intimidated by your spouse. Yeah. So that kind of builds on what was created earlier. So it kind of matches a little bit more. Yeah. And in the book, like it's like they're, they had a lot of probably like options just to kind of like pry escape early, but they wanted to like, no, we mm-hmm. got to do this for Jack. We got to help Jack. And then in the movie, Wendy almost seems like, like she, she was kind of now the longest time. Like she's like, Oh yeah, my husband, he's, he's a, he's a nice man. He's a very nice man. And then when he snaps, there's like this, all this repressed, like denial is makes her literally speechless. Like she literally only speaks in screams for the latter half of the movie. Cause I think she's just as in shock. And so that's a, I mean, it's hard to say, which is worse or better because they benefit the movie. I think it, it's hard to watch it knowing the abuse Shelley Duvall went through that kind of added to the performance, which makes it more tragic. Mm-hmm. Uh, because it's it is abusive, like straight right out of the bat. It's not borderline. It, it was abusive the way Kubrick would just make her rerun things over and over and over again. So like, because he seemed, I don't know if it was just a he that was his intent to make this character like a helpless, like like a just scream like character that the entire movie, or was just, but like it, they were just very much the very different characters, and not even just in descriptions. Because in the book she's blonde, and this one she's brunette. I mean like. Um, that's just like a mild thing. Um, but in terms of just sort of like really her relationship to Danny and Jack is very different. Like she's very, I think she wants to wish that everything's fine. Uh, but I think, but we all know that Jack's very much an unreliable narrator right off the bat. He introduces himself in an interview and that's kind of like him, him saying he's speaking on behalf of both Wendy and Danny. And this case, like, the book you get more from Wendy's side of the situation, but really Wendy doesn't really have really much of an agency or a release or come to terms realization until the end and both equally terrifying and tragic. And this one is just more, I think just more reactive uh, from us, the audience. I, I mentioned this when we reviewed the shining. Um, I always view her as she's the stand in for the audience in the Mm -hmm. film version where you have Danny who is, you know, obviously this, we mentioned earlier, the shining isn't as well defined, but he's, you know, he's going into these trances. He's, you know, dealing with the shining um, and, you know, seeing a lot of things that he's not sure if it's real or not. Um, And then, you know, Jack is full on um, crazy pants. And I, so I always view Wendy as like, she is kind of the she's kind of the the rock and is holding it kind of all together and has that kind of um clarity that the other two characters don't have until like that moment where she does realize like oh my husband has completely fucking lost it and then that's the first time she starts to see ghosts um and so that that's how i always kind of viewed that is that um if we were involved were in this narrative i feel like a lot of us would would be like wendy um and if we were experiencing this you know when the time comes where she completely is just 
like Jimmy said, completely gripped with fear. Uh, I think a lot of people would react that same way. So, um, you know, does that necessarily excuse making the character more helpless? I don't know. Again, I feel like I, if she was a little more strong willed, like she is in the book, I, I think that would have clashed with how far the other way that Kubrick was going with the Jack character because her strong will, I think kind of keeps Jack a little more on the straight and narrow for longer in the book than it, than um, obviously like he's, he's very aloof right off the bat in the, in the film. And so I think there'd be way too clear attention between them right off the bat, because if anything, she's trying so hard, it breaks my heart. And when I watch that movie, she's trying so hard to be supportive and he's a fucking dick. Oh yeah. He's a piece of shit. She's making him sandwiches. She's doing all the fucking work. And And she's just, I mean, just like, you know, when, when she's like asking about like things that they can do this or that. And he just like kind of goes off on her. Um, Oh man. Yeah. Mm. It, it, it's so, so hard to watch that part. Yeah, so, Jack is written differently, so it's not surprising that yeah. Wendy's different too. Yeah, yeah. So I, I think it's it's a logical direction change that was made. Mm-hmm. All right, yes. Rachel. Here, here's your time. <gasps> Topiary animals versus the hedge maze. Wait, oh yeah. Before, so we all. I mean, I, I think we. I have a good idea of of Rachel's opinion on this, but. I'm interested to see if we all lean in one direction on this. Um, so take it away. Okay. So I was uh, deeply unprepared for the topiary animals when I was listening <laughs> to this at work. And um, very rarely when listening to a book, do I get the feeling that I would like to take this book and put it in the freezer like Joey <laughs> does with the shining on friends. Yeah, uh, And this was the moment when I needed to stop listening to The Shining because I can't, apparently I'm incapable of highlighting payroll documents while listening to that topiary dog come after Jack Torrance. Yeah, uh, It was incredibly creepy and well done, mm. but I understand why it wasn't in the movie because it probably would not have read as well with 1980 CG. So Unless, I, yeah. I, I have something to bring to this. Um, the miniseries. When was um, that done? Yeah. 99, 2000 or something like that. Okay. So I they, haven't they seen it. Didn't Late really, so in, in the, the first, uh, you know, interaction, you know, or like display of, of the topiary animals, um, they actually did a pretty good job of displaying <laughs> the, the animal, at least in my opinion, um, uh, you, I mean, you can you shake your head, but you know, with the, with the techniques that they used to accomplish what they were going for, I, th- I feel like they did a pretty good job for the time. Just, yeah. I, I oh think yeah. It, it was displaying the, 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 you know, the terror, uh, that Jack experienced, um, because it was very, it was very subtle at first, you know, just like the book, it was very subtle. Um, and then it kind of, you know, ramps up and then it just, it's, ends with a full-on chase uh mm. you know of, of jack you know running through the snow trying to get back to the hotel um and he gets scratched up you know and in, in the in the miniseries and, and you know yeah. so yeah i, I think choose that, 
did they choose to keep the topiary animals through to the end of the miniseries as well? Because they interact with Dick Halloran too. So did they keep that or did they I, keep so them I've as only, more of a subtle beginning of the miniseries? I only, know, only watched sort of that thing. part when Brittany was watching the, the miniseries. Oh, okay. I missed when she got to the end. Was it in, did Dick get chased by the... Uh, she can't remember. What about you, Jimmy? Well, I, it was like, I mean, of course, like the bad, like see, at the time, special effects kind of, I would say, tarnish it. But I don't recall there being an interaction. I just remember like Dick Halloran, like just kind of entering in like this big like, storm into the hmm. mansion. But like, I, I'm definitely with you, uh, Craig, the execution of it, like it can be done really well because it's like, I remember this one video essay that I uh, watched prior to this podcast did this great, I think, comparison to how it can, that type of the whole, what makes the idea of a topiary animal or just this inanimate thing that you kind of just disregard, like in the second you turn your head, you turn back and it moves. Yeah. And it, it, and in terms of like, it's like the weeping angels and Dr. Yeah. Who is what they compared it to in terms of just how that can be well executed when you don't really want to draw attention to the budget in mind, like I can definitely guarantee that probably the Doctor Who people were like, well, we don't really want to have them move around too much and reveal the special effects. So let's have them move slightly. I'm not saying they were inspired by The Shining, but just that idea of what really is in the back of our head when we keep thinking something moved. That's so inherent in our fight or flight. So yeah, Mm -hmm. so that's what I think makes the topiary animals so terrifying. And the fact that- I think about the scene in the book where- um, well, it happens to both Danny and and uh, Jack. Where, yeah, just like you were saying, Jimmy, where walk a little bit and you know you're being followed. You turn around and then they're they're frozen, but in a different spot. Yeah, oh, that is really really scary. And I, I would have loved to have seen that in this movie, but I one thousand percent understand why they wouldn't or couldn't uh, mm-hmm. do it. They spent all their money on red bathroom paint. <laughs> yeah. And also the if I recall in the book, there's not only there's lions, a dog, and a rabbit, topiary mm-hmm. animals. Yeah. And then in the miniseries, they only really showed the lion. They never really showed or these just big dogs. They never really showed because I, I think that's another thing of like you have to be very careful how you make a, a rabbit menacing because then it borderlines Monty Python's holy grail. I yeah. think. Yeah. yeah. Especially because it was like a snow-covered topiary. But I appreciated that because yes, it's a rabbit. But they still have those kicking back legs, and they and it's a giant rabbit, so it was still very effective, even though it was a a, a bunny. Murphy, got any thoughts on this? Topiaries were cool. Hedge maze was not as cool. Mm-mm. Yeah, the whole think, the hedge. Oh, sorry, you finished. I was gonna say, um, as a stand-in, I think, and especially what the hedge maze became in terms of a pop culture icon. I mean, I, I think unless you're a big Stephen King fan and a lover of this book, like everybody knows that hedge maze. So yeah. I, I don't think it was a, a bad choice um, on, on the part of Kubrick. It is. So it's definitely inter- like it's taking a plot device and making it more s- of a, of a set design choice, which mm-hmm. is so Stanley Kubrick. Um, yeah. But visually, I think like it's, it definitely comes off really uh, interesting, especially like that really wild shot where they're going from the miniature of it to like actually being in uh, mm-hmm. 
the the maze and then the whole end sequence since they weren't going to do the the furnace you know gimmick the cinematography that happens in the in the maze that those crazy low tracking shots where you know they're they're following uh danny and then they're you know the camera's coming away from jack as he's pursuing is awesome and and visually is a you know, uh, an extra element that, you know, wouldn't be in it if, if it was such a straight across adaptation. So the film nerd in me is, I, I, I like that. Um, mm-hmm. but. Well, and also the maze kind of plays with that idea of something moving because like, as we've noticed the way things are, are shot, like, you know, we see the maze from above and then we're in the maze. We are, see the house from outside and inside. And there's a sense of inconsistency. Like we kind of can easily get lost. And so like in a way, like the Topher animals are an embodiment of the ghosts in the house. But in this case, they're almost an embodiment of the madness that's happening because they're they're literally trapped. Not only and all, I mean, and also there's this whole other theory on the documentary uh, room 238 where uh, 237 uh, like is um where the whole idea of like, oh yes, Jack is the um, the Minotaur and the maze is the maze in the like uh, Greek mythology. The labyrinth. The labyrinth. There's this whole other over analysis you can apply to it. But like, it, hmm. it, I like it visually too, Matt, because it just kind of plays in that whole thing of not just entrapment, but it's so easy to kind of question exactly like what's real, what's not real, something's off, like, um, and in a way like um, Jack's also kind of replaces the topiary animals in the sense of that they're being chased or they're being attacked uh, by something like it's, it, it, I can see why, because it seems kind of redundant to have two things attack the people throughout the movie. Mm-hmm. And I can see why they decided to copy and paste things. Right. Uh, I like the execution of both, but for the sake of the movie, I, I, I definitely like the, the way the maze chose was handled. Um, yeah, because I think Rachel brought up a good point. The special effects in the 80s might have been a little bit concerning. Yeah, I was just so, I, I like being surprised in a book. If I can guess where a book is going, then I'm usually quite disappointed in it. So if um, I had no idea they were coming yeah. and they were very effective. So I will probably well, always have a soft spot for them because of that. Yeah, it's, yeah, and this is kind of a, this is kind of like a, a random side thing I just kind of thought of, but like a more of a, good modern maybe take on the whole how the topiaries can interact in his space was like does anyone remember seeing the lady in water where you see those uh like no the, I, I, yeah, I, I saw it I, I disliked it so much that i blocked a lot of it out but, but yeah, go I, ahead but just that idea of just kind of like that embodiment of nature and the living thing i'm like okay the special effects were at that caliber back then i could see them done maybe in that kind of avenue yeah. That's just that's just kind of what came to mind in terms of the idea of like how would it be done on a more modern ish budget. Okay, so let's move on to Axe versus Rope Mallet, which Ooh. I find this to be a pretty large difference. Um, you know, yes. obviously I I I don't know if it's you know, completely changed the narrative difference, but um I think Visually, what I picture as the weapon of choice by Jack Torrance is uh-huh. uh, this makes a big difference for me personally. Any thoughts on 
on this difference? Well, I was waiting for you to ask that question, actually. Um, Ooh, but like, I'm ready to ask you out of this this, uh, this chat if you do that again. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, like, of course, like the axe has lived on beyond anything. It's so iconic. Like, you go to the Timberline Lodge. It's frame. It's actually hung up on the wall. Bro, they took it down. Yeah. I told you that. I they did. Uh, yeah, Heather and oh. I went there not that long ago and like looked all around for it. Yeah, it's not there. Why? Did somebody try to steal maybe it? Maybe they, they relocate it, maybe. Because I remembered it was right. The, it's, they must relocate it because I remembered it right at the front entrance. That's wild. Huh. Dude, um, I threw it all around it. It's not there. Bummer. Yeah. Uh, but like. It, I was looking for it. I remembered the the mallet is interesting because it does play into the more King-esque tropes where you bring something that you think is innocent and wouldn't really think is a threat. Because, I mean, when you think of croquet you think oh it's a fun family sport okay um where really just a childish game uh where you hit the ball in this case well, it's it's worse than a croquet mallet though it's a rope mallet which is like way fucking bigger like think Much, like yeah, heavier think like uh you know oh, like an over ro- the top like clown mallet it, it's yeah they're like it's got a big squared off end and it's it they're way bigger i guess i never seen it done i i guess my only idea of it visually is from the TV show because they played a lot more like a croquet thing. So I always thought it was more small and that tainted my reading of the book because I just kind of kept thinking, Oh, it's just like a little wooden hammer. No, it's, it's perfectly a uh, little kid head shaped. Gross. Oh, God. <laughs> that, yeah. But I, I, I don't know. Like it, I just figured I, 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 like, could, I figured I, I could uh, trigger Rachel. <laughs> it's just like whack a mole, whack a Danny. No. Oh my god. Okay, no, it's my turn. Uh, I'm going to talk yeah, go about ahead, how go, gross go, go, that go. is. Whew, okay. Um, so I assumed that they the choice of the rope mallet was made as a um, kind of speaking to the old timiness of the hotel because it's kind of a, a piece of a bygone era, much like the sport of Roke. Because yeah. I think all of us probably had to Google that shit when we started reading the book. Well, he even talks or, about when he's Danny asks him what it is. He even like, yeah, has a, I don't know. He says it's like old timey, you know, in the 70s. Yeah. So it's like part of the kind of the, the hotel used to be relevant and now isn't so much and that that weapon kind of uh, reflects that. Also, because it's not a bladed implement, um, Wendy can get hit by it twice and not immediately die. So that kind of- Or Dick uh, Halloran. Yeah, exactly. So, um, because there's that scene in the book where she gets hit by it and yeah, she, you know, cracks some ribs and stuff, but she's able still to move. So that lends like a, a strength. Doesn't he break her leg too? I thought he broke her ribs, probably her leg. I think they have to like limp out. I think I think there's a shot to the ribs, and then there's he also like hits her on the knee or like like shit or like somewhere on her leg. Yeah, because maybe I'm remembering incorrectly, but I I I want to say that I like I remember like because this is very King where there's like something about like he takes out a leg and like and then he describes in like graphic detail about like how the injury happens and then how it like it um it uh, encumbers her further her, her moving right, and she so, has a so hard then you're time getting like, up and down the stairs right and then you're almost like oh my god like she's she's done for how is she gonna you know get away from this guy w- with a bum leg I, again i might be remembering completely incorrectly and i'm like projecting something else onto that <laughs> Projecting different King injuries onto the character of Wendy because there have been so many in the Absolutely. lexicon. Absolutely. 
Yeah, I thought that that might be why Pug, that is a loud snore. Um, okay, you ha- now be... you have to call it out and give context because people are listening and are like, what the fuck is she talking about? Oh, sorry. Um, my dog sits next to me on the bed because if he does not, he becomes quite sad. And now he is asleep and snoring very loudly. And he's, he snored on the Scream 5 podcast and mm-hmm. yeah, now he's making more noise. Yeah, that's definitely a professional pug. My God. No, he's the least professional (laughs) pet that any of us have. Um, But I assumed that, of course, Wendy's not going to be able to take hits from the axe like she would from the rogue mallet and still survive that encounter. So it, it might seem like she's not as tough and she's just running away, but it's kind of like you get hit by that axe and you're done. Like if, if, it were to take out your ribs and or leg, there'd be some blood loss that would be hindering your ability to uh, run away on a snowmobile. Solid point. Solid point. So, yeah, she's weaker because she's running away from the thing. Weaker, in quotes. There are certain things that I love about the Roke mallet. I think, uh, again, this is a Chagov's gun that he absolutely utilizes. Like there, there's the whole setup immediately from when they get to the overlook. Um, and it loops right into, uh, Danny shine and the warnings from Tony and, and, and all of that, uh, stuff. There's something visually, I think that in, in the way that King writes it, that is makes, a seemingly and I guess maybe this is what Jimmy was getting at is like the the juxtaposition of uh, of that as a weapon like he writes it in a way where once it's wielded it's way more menacing and to me I think it's the way that he writes the sound of it when it hits the walls like that is maybe one of my favorite parts of this book where he, he describes the sound of it blasting through the walls and um, and that happens before he attacks everybody because uh, Danny's like, you know, um, imagining it and, and it keeps coming up like, you know, the, the sound. He, he hears the sound in his in his mind and everything. Um, and I think part of me is like, oh, that would have been really great to hear the sound design of that mm-hmm. um, in, a, in a film. But then I th- look at the visual that is the axe and especially like the chopping the door down scene. Yeah. One of the most iconic it, scenes in, in cinema history. It's way too know? iconic. I'm going to always go axe like uh, like what Jimmy said. It, it is such a item of pop culture now. Um, it's just synonymous with this movie and Axes have been wielded in so many horror films, but I think like, you know, if I said, hey, which Friday the 13th does Jason uh, wield an axe? You'd be like, I don't know, like any of them. But, you know, <laughs> but you'd always remember that, that if, you know, if it was, hey, what weapon does Jack Torrance wield in The Shining? Oh, well, an axe, of course. Um, and I think that it's it's such a simple tool that it's like, okay, we know it's got a bladed edge. Like, yeah, that's that would... F- really maim somebody whereas like a roke mallet um i think maybe they even kind of realize like it's 
it's almost a bit of a too too much of a esoteric idea for like uh for cinema where it's like I don't know if I could take Jack Nicholson being crazy Jack Nicholson super serious he's just running around with this big rogue mallet it'd be kind of like a little too comical where I think it's way more mm-hmm. menacing that he's got an axe um, well and also like kind of like you said most people probably wouldn't quite know what a rook mallet is so there would have to be like an explanation scene in the movie and that would kind of almost it'd be a little premature to like show the weapon that early on like because like the axe i don't think is even shown to like right when he goes mad like it's not like sitting there like a red herring yeah one of my favorite parts is at the very end of the novel where dick halloran's getting something out of the shed and he sees the rook mallets all lined up in their rack and one of them's missing and yeah that whole scene was so good i uh i really appreciated the difference between his headspace and jack's and ultimately the decisions that were made there and it was just extremely well written as though the overlook was presenting like the dangerous thing to the person that it wants to do its bidding and seeing if it if they'll take it so it kind of became more about that's the overlooks weapon that Mm. it's interested in somebody wielding yeah but behind a movie i mean axe sharp go with the axe any any other thoughts on axe versus rogue mallet no uh so that is a great segue into uh dick uh what happens with his character uh, obviously because of getting hit with a rogue mallet he is greatly injured but survives in in the novel and kind of where the novel ends um it's very important that he survives and uh but then he's very brutally murdered in uh in the film and in my mind, that makes sense because of how much more finality there there is with a lot of with with Jack's story, um, especially in the in the movie where it's like, I don't know if. I don't know if Dick surviving is as necessary as as it is in the narrative of the book. Um, but then part of it's like, is it just they're, they needed a, a kill in there. They needed a big kind of shock since uh, he wasn't Jack Nicholson wasn't going to kill Wendy or Danny. Um, thoughts on this? I I know uh, I I know some fans hate hate uh, that Dick is killed in the movie. Well, I can see why because he kind of becomes like a secondary father figure to Danny, and in the movie sense, it's of course it's done a effectively when you're in the audience because you think oh everything's going to be all right everything's going to be saved and it's just taken away so that abruptness is effective but there i think they're they probably i don't know i, I kind of wonder how they would have executed in the movie had they kept the whole um the stand-in kind of father that, that kind of like that guiding like oh i'm going to show you how the shining but that would almost probably like imply so much of a sequel of course i doubt any of them really had the uh, uh, idea that like it would be redone decades later but i can see why there is uh, a frustration because there is a very well like fleshed out relationship between the two of them that the movie kind of doesn't really uh fully go through i mean it does well but it's sort of like 
there is definitely, I can definitely see the frustration and it kind of does fall into that unfortunate, like stereotype that like, Oh, the one black guy dies. Uh, and that's very like stuck in horror. Yeah. I mean, when I, when I first saw the movie, I, I definitely remember the, the like rug pull moment. Um, you know, when, cause you, you know, you see Dick, you know, driving through the, the blizzard um, and you're like, cool, mm, you know, this is going to work out. And then, I mean, he's killed like basically as soon as he actually gets there, um, yeah. you know, like as soon as he walks in and you're like, cool, he's going to help out. And then he's dead. Um, you know, and that's, that, that was like a, a great rug pull moment. Um, but, you know, I think maybe it's more particular to people that had read the book first, um, that they were more frustrated with the change. Um, I think that it was great from a, a, you know, a a filmmaking perspective. I think that it was very well done. Um, I don't I don't necessarily think that it was a, you know, good or bad decision. Um, I just think that it was, it was well done in the context of the movie. Um, but you know, after reading the book and I, and by the way, I love finding out that like one of my favorite characters that dies in the movie you know, survives in the book. I'm like, yes, it's like the same thing with uh, Muldoon in Jurassic Park. Like I was stoked that he survived. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it's uh, I think that I, I do prefer Dick surviving and having kind of more of an impact, um, you know, n- near the ending as, as well as beyond that, you know, the lead up um, was much more, you know, there was kind of like, you know, a much bigger part of the end of the story, you know, near the end of the story, Dick's entire, you know, traveling, uh, you know, or sorry, t- entire time traveling back to the Overlook uh, from Florida, you know, going to talk to his boss and then, you know, going and, you know, all the different challenges that he encountered, you know, including the the topiary animals. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that I, I get where the frustration comes from. Um, but I liked both individually. Sam, I, I feel like it was necessary um, because it's it's a, it's such a small cast by the end of the end of the film. It was necessary in the film because outside of that kill, it's kind of a horror movie that is really low on gore and and low on uh, any sort of like murder or whatnot. Um, because you know we have like some of the the kind of gory stuff, but it's, it's all very much like in the character's minds or we're like, getting just, like just past, glimpses. past glimpses. Yes. Yes. And like, to me, that little bit of violence, um, keeps this grounded as a horror film because it's so atmospheric that that kind of visceral moment where he's kind of, you know, walking down the hall and then Nicholson comes out and he does this horrible, like bellow. He's and just chops him right in the chest. Like it's, it's so jarring the first time you see that. Um, So I think it's effective uh, in that regard. And I, I don't know. Kubrick had a very, a lot more of a cynical ending in mind than uh, King had. So I think he was kind of like, this guy doesn't really need to survive. And it's too, I'm, I'm guessing it was probably too much of a leap for him to have killed his wife or son. Um, I think you'd have more people that would be 
pissed off than that about that rather than yeah, a supporting character. I think that if he had killed either Danny or Wendy in the film, the film wouldn't be nearly as good. Um, you know, cause that's just, as you mentioned, that's way too much of a departure, um, to, you know, to, I think be remain, you know, to continue the, the differences, the quality and the differences. Yeah. So I think that most of the differences, um, they still retain, like you, they, they still accomplish something. Um, so, but I, I think that if he had changed it to kill Wendy or, or Danny, then it just would have been, mm-hmm. Um, Dick Holleran was an interesting character for me, especially having watched the movie first and then read the book. Um, I feel like the the kill for um, Dick Holleran is a lot is very effective in the movie. I agree with that, especially because Wendy is portrayed as having a little bit less agency. Um, like she, you know, she is at that height of her fear and and has done some fighting back for sure. But like, you don't have a whole lot of faith in her getting her and Danny out of the situation in the movie. Mm-hmm. And so Dick Holleran showing up and you having that like sigh of relief that is instantly killed. Um, like that is a very effective piece of that movie. Whereas then as I was reading the book, I liked Dick Holleran's character more in the book, mostly just because it was fleshed out more, like you understood his purpose more. Um, and like it was mentioned kind of as a follow-up father figure to Danny at the end there. Um, but uh, he wasn't as necessary. Like as I was reading the book, because Wendy is kind of, is is more autonomous and, and has more, it seems to have a bit more of a backbone to her um, or, has more of a purpose of being there, I guess, because I've I always kind of lost, didn't really understand why Wendy would choose to take her and her son to the Overlook Hotel if she was already afraid of her husband in the movie versus like in the book, they're, they're trying to build their relationship. So that makes more sense. Yeah. So as, you know, Dick is coming to their rescue, it's one of those things where it's like, oh, cool, he's coming, but I don't know how necessary he is. Like Wendy's doing pretty well. Um, and then at the same time, I didn't know that he was going to survive. So it kind of like, it made his character in the book a little bit less effective for me because I saw him in the movie first. Gotcha. It was interesting. Hmm. Let's transition to Jack's death. Uh, and I would like to pass this immediately to Craig because this was kind of like the catalyst for why I wanted to do this, this series in this podcast episode, because I know you have a very strong feeling about this in particular. Yeah. Um, let's talk about that. So, um, and, and I, this our conversation was years ago, so sorry if I don't touch on, but I, I believe I know what you're uh, getting at. Um, so the the biggest difference in I think you know a large part of what the book accomplished at the end um, is the portrayal of Jack as a father at the very end. Um, so you know in the book, uh, Jack has that like that moment of clarity, like right as he's about to strike Danny down and he comes out of it and he just, you know, he yells at his son. He's like, run Danny. And remember the daddy, you know, the daddy loves you. And it's just like this super emotional moment um, because he, you know, like, like he, you know, he sees Danny and then the real Jack snaps back in um, and then just tells Danny to run, you know, like it was just this, uh, this amazing moment that was so perfectly executed in uh, in the book. 
Um, and then that pretty much leads in, you know, right in, um, to the, you know, to the, I guess the, the hotel's realization, um, that the, uh, you know, that the, that the furnace hadn't been, um, the pressure hadn't been released or, or whatever the, the mechanism was. Um, yeah, it was, it was pressure gauge. Yeah. Um, and so it's just, it's kind of that, that moment leading up right there and then, and then it continues on and, you know, the, you know, he snaps back in and then he has to run, you know, or sorry, the, the, you know, Jack snaps back into the, uh, into the insanity and has to run down to the, to the furnace room, uh, or into the basement. Um, so I hope that that's what you're wanting me to touch oh, on that. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. Okay. But for me, that, that was just like, like I said, when I, when I was reading that, it, it was kind of similar to, to the, to the Halloran situation is that like, I wasn't expecting that. I wasn't prepared for that. Um, and I remember the first time, you know, even rereading it, but the first time I read it, it was like, it, it was really emotional and I got a little teared up reading it. Um, so yeah, just perfectly executed and, and very, uh, very emotional. Anybody else? Well, it's, it kind of does like, um, the way it's executed in the book, I mean, leading up to the death, the whole, like, he actually, the when they kind of take over him and they literally bash his head open, the way it's described and the, I, is it, it works so visually in the, in my mind. And like, I, it's, it's kind of, I'm kind of repeating some other points I've talked prior, but like the, the leading up to Jack's death in the way his, the, in the movie, the madness is the, the, furnace as we kind of already established the whole like ticking time bomb and engine erupts uh they're both equally as like terrifying it to their own like regard i the one in the book's a lot more visually visceral and terrifying because you know the fact that he's unable to he's no longer control he's literally been killed for the ghost to kind of take over and finish the job and the movie you know he dies you'll and you kind of leave yourself questioning will people ever know or find him? Is he like going to be stuck in the maze forever? Like, uh, and that's equally as unsettling, but I would say the book I found a lot more like visceral uh, than in the movie, but I guess they both work equally well. I mean, just their own kind of regard, but they're both just done so executely different, but they're literally a two sides of the same coin. I mean, like one freezes, one dies in the explosion, fire, ice, kind of playing back to that whole, the death kind of reflects the whole, they want to do a different take of what the story is. Any other thoughts? Are we going to talk about the, the parties? With the dress-up characters, ah, uh. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I talk about it if you want. <laughs> well, I would like to posit that they were both equally well executed between book and movie, because in both we got to uh, hear and uh, see very confusing things about rich people playing in costumes. Oh, that dressing up. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, so you're you're deviating a bit. Okay, I thought you meant how the film ends with the that really kind of ambiguous thing where it's that long shot with that zooms in and he uh, Jack Nicholson is in the picture from like the 1920s. Mm-hmm. Oh, when yeah. When you said dress up, is... I thought that's what you meant because Sorry. that that comes right on the heels of that that um, of the death. 
that, yeah. yeah, that's that kind of like quick cut to him. Okay. Yeah. Forget what I said about people in dog costumes. What's what's up with that? Um, him joining the 1920s picture. <laughs> I mean, in terms of what we interpret from that meaning. Like, yes. I, I mean, in the, the world of the movie, like I interpret that as like, oh, this is just an endless cycle of violence. Mm. Like, um, or he's finally find acceptance in, in this world of violence. I disagree. Well, I mean, I, I, I have two, but I, I, I kind of go back and forth. I mean, that's just one way it's interpreted, but I kind of just saw it as like, oh, like some people say that, oh, he, he's always been the one that's constantly killing people. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Mr. But Mr. Like, Torrance, like, you've I always just, been the caretaker. Like, yeah. And I think but, that's why it's, oh. it leans more into the a- ambiguity of like, did any of this happen at all? You yeah. Know, and that, and, and that's why I kind of like, like to lean into the whole, the metaphor of like, it's just a repetition of violence. Like Jack is just another, stand, it's just another version of what's happened so many times prior. Um, and that's why he's kind of blended in with everything else. Uh, I mean, like in terms of like, uh, that, like some people take it very literal in that, like, oh, he's just reappeared and lost his memory and killed people. That's like a, mm. a stretch, but I don't know. It, it's, but I, I'm, I, I kind of prefer that kind of, uh, take in the fact that it is just, you know, it's just sort of like, it's just re- a repetition of what's already happened. Like, I mean. He's become one of the ghosts in the hotel that will then, since in this version, the hotel continues to exist, will continue to victimize people. Yeah, because nothing's been resolved. Well, really, well, I think the suggestion is he's always been one of the ghosts, though. Hmm. Because that image is from prior to when, you know, whatever the present is in this uh, in this narrative, which is, you know, 1980 or whatever. Um, mm-hmm. I, I tend to... I agree with Craig that, you know, in comparison, there's a lot more emotion uh, in the the King version. And he's actually get, the biggest criticism that I find a lot with King is regarding his endings. He's he's kind of known for having better beginning and beginnings and uh, middle sections of his uh, books in comparison to the endings. I would argue that this is one of his finest endings. Oh yeah, um, absolutely. For this, the narrative he was telling for the narrative that Kubrick was putting together. I don't think it's a emotional, dare I say sentimental sort of moment for Jack Torrance would have made any sense to be like, what the fuck is this? This guy was, where did that come from? Yeah. Where that, was that whole entire yeah. time. Yeah. It wasn't Jack. built up at all through the movie. There's no way that would make sense. So yeah, I, I think, you know, having him die without any sort of redemption, just frozen out in the snow is fitting. And then, you know, I, I think like, we didn't necessarily need that long shot of, of the, the picture, but I think that just to really put a nice little bow on what Kubrick was trying to do with just like atmosphere ambiguity is, I think it's great. I I think it's, it's absolutely great because with that ending, that is a lot more cynical and bleak. I, I don't really, I don't know. I don't think we need to have it be so, you know, with so much finality, like it would have killed it for me if like 
it then cut to, you know, him, a uh, little Jack popsicle, and then like, you know, search and rescue finds him or something like that. I, I think that would have sucked. So I think the logical yeah. thing with was just to sprinkle that ambiguity um, on top of it. So if we thought that, you know, like, okay, well, yeah, this this all tracks. That, you know, there was that whole thing with the furries giving each other blowjobs. But, uh, you know, uh, uh, all this tracks. Then it's like, no, no, it doesn't track at all because, because you know, then it's like, well, has he been here the whole time? Um, so I, I enjoy both, but I think that that this is really where I have to look at these as two different things. Yeah. I think that that kind of, you know, plays back to the, you know, uh, you know, very beginning of of the, of the two different mediums um, and portrayals of Jack is that, you know, I prefer the book, um, you know, the book ending of, you know, or basically the, you know, the, basically the end of Jack before he, you know, smashes his face in, um, in that he can have that redemption because of how the characters are portrayed mm-hmm. um, where, you know, as it wouldn't make any sense for him to have that redemption in the movie. I just think that yeah. overall the, you know, I, I prefer the character representation um, that allowed for the redemption to occur. It's interesting that we're talking about kind of the, you've always been the caretaker, Mr. Torrance and kind of a, a cyclical nature of things. Whereas when I think of, I don't necessarily feel that as much in the movies as I do in the book, because in the book, they constantly have that party elevator coming up and the music playing and kind of hearing that drifting through the hotel over and over and over again. And is it, is it coming with more regularity as they get closer to midnight in the book? Like it's coming faster and faster. Oh, I don't remember. Yeah. It's like I counting down almost to a, a climax. Um, maybe not more regularity, but it's getting louder. Like it's more, oh, okay. they can hear it more, I think is what it is. Mm, yeah. It's okay. kind of like one of those um, uh, Hotel California feelings. Like they're constantly partying and constantly drinking yeah. and constantly uh, doing things to each other. And it's just not satisfying. And, you know, we just yeah. have to keep going because that's what we do. We scare people and murder them with rope mallets. Well, there is, and a, then, oh, I'm sorry. I was just going to say, like, that kind of, this is just another uh, theory people have applied to this. Because if you watch the documentary Room 238, 237, it just kind of goes <laughs> on and on and on and on and lists this. But the, one of the funny, weird things people have noticed is that kind of you said the building up to midnight, the, the witching hour when the ghosts are at their strongest uh, peak. Uh, it, it, if you look at when the uh, when Jack's given a tour of the hotel out uh he, it's described of when the hotel opens and closes and they say, oh, yes, we uh, we reopen on October 30th. So the official reopening day is the day after. So it's on Halloween, the 31st. So a lot of people kind of play in that theory that, oh, they're saying that the bewitching hour is at strongest at midnight, the New Year's Eve, as well as the whole 30th, 31st Halloween. So that's just one way people have kind of analyzed that. I mean, Kubik's not here to confirm or deny, which makes a lot more of this weird litmus test. This movie. Mm-hmm. I, I do think that you're onto something though, Rachel, because like if we're talking about kind of a, you know, a, th- a theme of uh, a cycling or a, an infinity loop or, or something like that, the same can be said about how there's always some sort of tragedy or murder. Um, and, and I, and I think that that's kind of, 
what Kubrick was doing with that photograph. And I think that's kind of what you were getting at, Jimmy, is like that he was taking a very like abstract version of that idea, mm-hmm. which where it's a, a little more fleshed out in, in King's novel. Yeah. And um, he's explored it further too, like in Pet Cemetery, the whole idea that the soil is sour. Uh, kind of like in this case, the foundation of the hotel is literally just built upon violence. So it's like you can kind of see both want to explore that and different. It's avenues. a manifestation of evil. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Yeah. And, and you're right that this is like far from the first time he's ever done that. Mm-hmm. I mean, like you could argue that the Nebel house uh, or the house on Nebel Street and and it is very much has similar sort of themes where it's you know. It's not just a haunted house. It's it's inherently evil, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, That's not uncommon in a lot of stuff, too. The, the, oh, like yeah. in Poltergeist, where you know things happen and bad in this area because it's built on a burial ground. Or, I mean, God, even Ghost Ship. The bad things happen because this gold is haunted and just keeps going around and around and around. Yeah, yeah that's a it's a common thing. Mm-hmm. Somewhere uh, Christy and Cynthia... Yeah, they, they can hear it be mentioned. Yeah, you just I pull can. off your, you just pull it off. Like I've been sitting this whole time just to like sneak <laughs> in this ghost, this ghost ship reference. Yep. No, I'm I'm just indoctrinated uh, to oh the, the love of ghost ship. That terrible, terrible movie. Murphy, what, any what, thoughts on Jack's death? You've been quiet. Um. On. Well, yeah. So, I mean, I, I could have gone without the ambiguity of the picture at the end of The Shining. I totally understand the ambiguity of it all as far as like the that that shrouds that movie. Mm -hmm. Um, I just am very much against ambiguity at the end of a movie. Because to me, that tells me you don't know how to end it. (laughs) Like if you're making the audience guess so much. Um, And so like that piece even prior to have, re- have, have it, having read the novel, like that piece always never really sat right with me. Um, I think that, but like, I, like I, I do get the, the context there or well, the lack of context there, I guess. Um, and, uh, and so I, I do much prefer, I agree with Craig where I, I do much prefer the, but like I prefer that altogether, and like that's that's my sticking point between the two of them is that the characters are lacking in the in the movie. Like they they lack that connection to each other that actually makes it more meaningful overall as far as the story that happens to them. Mm-hmm. Totally. You're gonna say something, Jimmy? Uh, uh, no, like a. I was, but then I'm like wanted to save it for a further kind of okay. like end note because uh, it felt more relevant for the later than for even though we're kind of like touching okay. base on it. And I'm like, ooh, save. Do you have a? I heard a grunt come your way, uh, Craig. Were you going to say something? No, no. Okay. Um, I, I don't know. That might have been. I was Olivia was shaking her chair around and it was making noise. So. Okay. She yeah, heard, if you heard grunting. a grunt, they, yeah, if they, you heard a grunt, sorry. it could have been the yeah, could have been the dog. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it could have been. Uh, okay, so let, let's get into wrap-up mode here. All right, without getting into what your preference is, around the Zoom squares, do you enjoy both works? I can wholeheartedly say yes for me. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Yes. Okay. Uh, is there a common element that you feel works better in one medium uh, over the other? Uh 
in in the exec in the in like in the execute uh, was that the end of your question or yeah. is um yeah. in the execute uh, overall execution I mean like I think the character the 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 whole execute the whole the writing of character and the fleshing out of characters better done to an extent uh, in like the book Shining than we'd get but of course Kubrick's approach to characters different I mean. But between the two, I think we get more of a fleshed out uh, character in the book. So I think that's where it's at its strongest. But I don't know, cinema is kind of like this weird litmus test. So in some ways, like, I don't, Stephen King's not really much in ambiguity and like uncertainty. He kind of like, he, he wants to explore things and Kubrick likes to kind of leave things at a whole question mark in some, in some of his themes. So like it, it's kind of it's tricky to say, but I would say I would say like the main thing that I think is better like executed in the in the sense of the two comparisons is just the the approach to character uh, and the fleshing out of such. Okay, I um <clears throat> sorry, go ahead, Rachel. Oh, I was just gonna say as we've discussed here, it sounds like it's just a style difference. Yeah, King tends to be more um, potentially emotional and personal and. Uh, I can't get over how well he writes children. Um, it's startling. Don't um, read it. Oh no, never. <laughs> well, if we do this adaptation, I probably. Oh, I think you should. Might read have it. to. Yeah, uh, I will never read Pet Cemetery as we've covered previously because mm. the movie was hard enough. Um, but it, it's there's just a different skill set. And yeah. these people happened to have wildly different skill sets while trying to work with the same basic through line story. So, yeah, I think um, for me, the uh, element of, of isolation is better in the movie. Agreed. Um, we didn't talk because, about that, but you're totally right. I think. Yeah. With the nameplates, you mean the like Monday. Um, one month later. No, I think more so. I mean, yeah, I mean, that, that's well, they never even fun. leave the hotel. Whereas in the book, before that, they get snowed in, they leave several times and they go yeah, down they, sidewinder. Yeah, like they, yeah, like go down to you know the the doctor after Danny you know has the bee the uh, encounter with the bees. Because that's the thing is, and um, that's what's very interesting is she has so many thoughts about like I could leave. You yeah, know, like yeah. and whereas I think it's a little different where she's kind of trapped in the movie yeah anyways so um but i mean in, in even just presentation aside you know from a filmmaking or from, uh, from a like cinematography standpoint but also it allows for adding in the sounds you know of uh of the the blizzard outside you know the, you know the the gusting wind and you see you know the snow and how you know uh encumbering it is uh, as well as um, the sound design when Danny's riding his big wheel, you know, uh, you know, and he's going over <laughs> the sections of carpet and then he gets onto like the tile. Oh, tell me more. I've said this before. <laughs> slower, said, slower, Craig. <laughs> um, I've said this before, but when he's on the tile with his big wheel, I'm just like the whole time. I'm like, shut the fuck up, Danny. Like, why are you making so much noise? Like it drives me crazy because you just feel so exposed. The sound design just does so much 
for for you know f- making you feel like stuck you know you just validated um, me so hard because i basically <laughs> made the same exact <laughs> yeah, analysis about that scene when we smoking a cigarette <laughs> here in a second <laughs> was that good for you craig <laughs> <laughs> yeah i made the same exact analysis um when we reviewed this movie so thank you thank you for validating my You're my welcome. feelings on the shining sound design <laughs> okay who else Common element. I feel it works better. I mean, I think I've said it many a times, but yeah, reading reading the book made me realize that I had no reason to care for any of the characters in the movie um, other than Danny, because obviously he's an innocent child. And so there's no reason for the things to be happening to him that are happening to him. But yeah. like I, yeah, I mean, Jimmy mentioned it too. It's just that the, like I I don't find any sympathy for Jack Torrance. And then with Wendy's character, I get, I do think that the feeling that they were going with the movie and that, that, and that they do portray that feeling of isolation better. Um, But again, I think that's because that relationship isn't developed. And so like the, the fam, the familial relationship keeps that isolation at bay a little bit by a little bit. And then of course it starts to fade in the book. Um, But in the, in the movie, like, her her character is just it's always it's all starts at that level six or seven and goes so far um and so I think that I was able to I am somebody who has a really hard time if there's not a a sympathetic character or if I have a hard time sympathizing with characters in uh, movies or television I have a very hard time sticking to that medium or that particular show or, or movie and so I think that that's the like that's the sticking point for me um, between the two. Anybody else got any thoughts on this? Um, Brittany has some analysis. Brittany, come and now she's getting all no. Come on, come on. Gun shy. Well, I was just gonna say that like I can sympathize with Jack more in the book because it kind of goes more into detail his relationship with his father. Then, like, whereas in the movie they didn't really kind of cover that. So yeah. in the movie or in the book or yeah, the book I was like, oh dang, I really feel more for Jack because you kind of see his yeah relationship with alcoholism and stuff, and he kind of relates it. And he's a product of abuse. Yeah. Yeah. I completely forgot about that. Thank you, Brittany. Yeah. I mean, you know, we, we touched we touched on, you know, like the, the differences in the characters, but we didn't really touch on his relationship with his dad. Yeah. Um, his dad was like an alcoholic. Yeah. He like his mother. Yeah. And I think kind of Jack had that shining a little bit from that because like he kind of saw like the abusiveness and like just that gore so young. Yeah. Well, and that kind of ties back into that cycle of violence being portrayed through the book as well that Rachel was talking about. Yeah. Yeah. So f- common elements that I feel work better in one versus the other. Um, I agree with all of you. I think that King's character development is far better, but I think that Kubrick had no intentions of doing that, that, you know, that much deep character development. Um, Why would he? But yeah. And then the, thus the emotional quality of the story is, is I think, um, better in in the novel and i think the the pacing is really great in the novel um but again it's one of those things where i I don't think that the movie needs that pacing but i i really enjoy that slow that slow burn um sort of story that has peaks and valleys um 
And I think that the themes of alcoholism um, and uh, family are far better defined in the in the novel. In the film, though, I think that the use of atmosphere as a um, element of horror is far more palpable for me. Like the whole entire time that movie just, I feel unsettled every time I watch it. And I've seen it many, many, many times. Um, again, I'm a way bigger fan of the reveal of red rum um, in the film. And the same with the uh, all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy. That kind of the affirmation uh, for Wendy of like, Oh yeah, my husband is fucking lost it. Uh, I, I think that that's a little more effective for me as kind of like uh, as a twist. So those are kind of big ones for me. Um, all right. Where do you think this work falls in King's bibliography and Kubrick's filmography? Do you think that those are related at all? And what I mean by that is, you know, do you think that one's prestige affects mm-hmm. the other? It- I would oh. say like they they both have a, their own unique ways to approach their craft. Like King is very much artist therapy. Like when he's dealing with his addiction, he uses a character as sort of like a, a mirror to kind of navigate these thoughts with lots of internal monologues. Like it's basically him hashing things out while Kubrick Kubrick is a lot more, he does in a sense put himself in his characters in other movies, but they're not a literal. They're more what he personally is interested in. So instead of like him navigating like his own personal issues, he's navigating ideas that intrigue him. And so it's sort of like in a way, King's a lot more approached on like internal, the body, the mind. Uh, Kubrick's a lot more focused on the mind and a lot more the esoteric and the ambiguous. Like it's sort of like he he uses a sense of exploration. Um, In this case, both use their own respective like worlds of the shining to explore what really interests them. I mean, what I would say, if I were to say Kubrick to kind of compare him to King in the sense of putting himself as a character reflection, uh, there isn't, I would, there isn't really a literal character that reflects Kubrick in any of his movies. Just there's this always a socially awkward uh, character, you could say that kind of is his stand-in. You could stretch that maybe is a little bit of a stretch, but like there's always that sense of like someone that doesn't really quite fit in with the rest of the sense. Uh, and in terms of execution of their respective like craft, like King's a lot overly descriptive. Like he writes a thousand words a day, and I don't know how much he really cuts. And you can kind of get a little tired of those internal monologues in some of his books, but they do work in character development. He cuts a lot more than what he gets credit for, because if you read the uncut version of The Stand, I mean, we're talking like 500 page difference. Mm -hmm. Wow. So, yeah, I mean, yeah, I think he he cuts more than what he gets credit for. That's good to hear. But Kubrick Kubrick overall, Kubrick, I guess it's hard to describe him because he's not really here to like really give his back down of really what he wanted to do with uh, The Shining. Like even now when people- I know, you can never rely on Stanley. Yeah. I I, I invited him. He didn't even fucking respond. He's like- He's a flake. Ghosted me. Yeah. He literally ghosted you. I mean, it's sort of like- (laughs) Yeah. At at least Steven, you know, he's like, Matt, I- I really appreciate what you're yeah. doing. Uh, but I yeah, respect I got, your work yeah, so and, much. And but. he said, I got to be honest, I don't have anything good to say about Stanley. 
And I know you invited <laughs> Stanley as well. I, I don't want to be on the same podcast as him. So yeah. I'm going to respectfully decline. I said, that's okay, Steve. <laughs> I would I call yeah, Steve. No. We're, we're close. Yeah. Yeah. Steve, nice. Steve, Steve, Steve and Stan, Steve and Stan. We're on a first name basis. Uh, I mean, I guess Stanley Kubrick's overall approach to the story is like he kind of, because of his photography background, he kind of wants to focus on the big picture. He wants you to kind of absorb these big wide shots and Very just sort visual, of like visual centric. Exactly. And so that's why there's a sense of cold, distant, because he wants you to just look at this and kind of apply what you want. And that's, he does that in a lot of films, like 2001 A Space Odyssey, of course, The Shining. And like, but like even in even even in like Barry Lyndon, he wants you to kind of absorb the environment and he doesn't really give you much in deep, uh, overly written like characterization. Like that's I think that's the one thing that uh, King does better than Kubrick is characterization. But in terms of just their own approach to the story, they had so opposite goals. Uh mm-hmm. I mean, overall, both wanted to explore the notion of addiction and abuse, so to speak, like in the approach of Kubrick, you could even say like uh, like they want to talk about the abuse more than the addiction. And while in, in King, he want to explore the addiction more. Uh, literally, like the house who wants Danny, they're addicted to what he's giving off. Like this, this the whole, like the notion of addiction is more embedded in, while in the, the Kubrick Shining, the notion of abuse and violence is a lot more at the forefront as we see it literally laced in the house itself. So I think both want to explore those two main themes that were hinted at in the book in its own own avenue. As far as how I'm feeling about the, you know, how they rank in their own lexicons, I would say they're at the top of both in my experience, because I'm pretty sure the only Stanley Kubrick film I've seen is The Shining. And I'm pretty sure the only uh, horror Stephen King novel I've read is The Shining. So they're <laughs> tippity top. All the way up to eleven, both of them. Okay, that's They're the fair. best. That's yeah. fair. Anybody else want to pop in there? You go, Amanda. Give us your opinions. Sorry, I was somewhat trying to wait out the airplane that was flying over. It was very loud. <laughs> um, I, um, well, to be honest, I'm not versed enough in Kubrick's films to know all of them and to know how many of them I have seen. I do really enjoy The Shining as like as its own standalone entity, um, his movie. Um, as far as books go from Stephen King, I have read a few and I have read far more of his short stories um, than I have his novels. So as far as like out of his out of his writing out of his novels that I've read, it's definitely at the top, um, but that's not very many. Mm-hmm. Um, I am very intrigued. I know Stan couldn't make it today, but I am curious <laughs> as to, because like, because it's very clear that Stanley Kubrick didn't read The Shining and go, I'm going to tell that story. Like the story itself obviously didn't speak to him because it, it, he didn't, didn't use it and utilize the, the, I mean, like very subtly some of the overarching themes, but ultimately that's not what he landed on. Um, so I'm really curious, like what details he picked out on that he thought would be so visceral, because obviously a lot of the, the iconic parts of The Shining, the movie, 
aren't parts of the book at all or or are very loose takes on some parts of the book um so i'm very yeah so it's just obviously it's not a question that can necessarily be answered but that is a, a very as far as comparing the two it's a very intriguing thing to me as far as what specifically Stanley Kubrick picked up on and went, yes, I want to make that. That's going to translate well. That's the fascinating thing about a lot of uh, Kubrick's book adaptations, because almost all of his movies are based off books. 2001, Lolita. Eyes uh, Wide Shut. Eyes Wide Shut, The Killing. Lolita? Oh, dear Lord. Okay. He did 1960. And and even you look at the like comparisons, there are so many big differences. I mean, 2001 is a weird example because like they both wrote the book and the screenplay at the exact same time time so you can there's a lot more involvement but His even like oh, of a clockwork orange is way different than the book yes yes yeah. and oh i have okay. seen that i will have to say i take it back knowing that he did an adaptation of lolita i no longer want to know what he sees in a book and decides to remake it i'm, I'm good with that <laughs> it, 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 it's if you ever do come across it's weird because it came out in 62 so you can definitely see where the studio is like we can't show this like dumb it down a bit like i and he was a lot more of a studio hire director at the time. So like even like he even did like a big epic called Spartacus. So like you can kind of look at the trajectory. You can see at what point he kind of broke away from studio involvement just to do his full unfiltered Kubrick. Uh, and you can kind and of this, count. This movie is full unfiltered Kubrick. Oh, uh, I think yes. That's why he, he's like, I'm going to make these decisions. Uh, oh, you and know. did you all ever look up the Razzie nominations this movie got? Out of curiosity. No. no. The Shining got Razzie. Oh, got quite a few. Uh, so worst, first of worst. all, I'm surprised that it got nominations, but I'm also surprised that the Razzies were around at the time. Yep. Yeah, they've been around yep. for a while. I'm sorry, Razzie? Huh. Razzie uh, like worst films. Yeah. Yep. So the opposite so, of like the Oscars. Yeah. Like they go back to the early seventies, mid seventies, I want to say, but like it wow. didn't get any, no Oscar nominations, the shining, but it got worst director, worst actor and worst actress. Uh, and we're score, which is ridiculous. Like uh, we're, How we're, we're sound. How oh, we're sound. I think was so it. good. You can't blame the actors for the fact that there was no character development written into the script. <laughs> like, yeah. yeah, man. Yeah. But the Razzies are incredible in it. But. The Razzies have lost all validity. Well, in yeah, they, they can't be trusted. That that's not the first time they've they've scorched a like a widely you know like cats. Cat. They completely <laughs> missed the point of cats. Oh my god! I mean, like they have. I mean, I'm 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 ready. Sometimes to, they get it, but it's because uh, yeah. they it's because they wanted the butthole cut. Okay, and they didn't get it. <laughs> Give us the butthole cut. They're secretly dog people. I think is the main stem of why you they. You know, they might be because they widely awarded Catwoman the most Razzies, and I mm-hmm. think it might just be the cats. That's, You're that's, right. That's a good point. That's yeah, a good yeah. point. Elitist. All right, Craig. What do you think this falls in uh, bibliography, filmography? It's tough for me. Um, because I love, you know, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of um, the Dark Tower series. Um, but The Shining just does everything so perfectly. Whereas the Dark Tower series definitely kind of has falters on a few things here and there. And um, it's definitely not everybody's cup of tea. So when people tell me like, like, yeah, I tried. And I'm like, no, dude, I get it. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. um, so I think that just, you know, in terms of, of execution alone, I think that The Shining is probably Stephen King's best novel. Mm. Um, and 
for Kubrick, it's a lot harder to really quantify because he's, I mean, he's just such a, a visionary with everything that he's, you know, uh, that he had done up to this point as well as beyond. Um, so I don't even know that I could really give a, a you know, a, a hard opinion on, on whether or not this would fall into his top. It's probably my favorite. It's that, or sorry, it's definitely my favorite. Um, I don't know necessarily know that it's his best work. I don't think I could say one way or the other that it's his best work. Whereas with the shining, I think I can definitely say that that is, is King's best novel. Okay. I tend to think um, I've read a lot of King. I mean, he has such a huge output. There's a lot that I haven't read as well, yeah. but I think like there could be an argument made. And I think most King fans and just, you know, most, um, you know, just people that are big readers just in general could probably agree that Salem's lot, pet cemetery, Carrie, the shining, I think those all have to be, you know, and, and then the, like the Dark Tower series, I think that's like the tippy top yeah. of like King's output. Um, and, and it, you know, if, especially if we're just kind of focusing on like just novels, because, I mean, you could make an argument for, yeah. for some of his novellas because um, it was or even short st- and short stories, too. Like, yeah, yeah. if we're talking that I, I would I would put in Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption. But um, yeah, for how in depth uh Stephen King can be in his novels. He does brevity surprisingly well. Yeah. Yeah. Anybody that, that's listening to this, as well as people in the podcast, do yourself a favor and read the jaunt. It is. Oh yes. The jaunt is great. And survivor oh, type. Uh, so yeah. Anyway, sorry, Matt. Oh yeah. No, it, that that's totally fine. I, we, we can nerd about King all day long. Um, but if that dude would have written just like a quarter of like what he's put out, he would still be like the goat. Um, Mm -hmm. And I mean, his output that is like, is good. Just, just good. Not great. Is still like gigantic. And his misses are, you know, not, he has misses, but they're, they're in the percentage of his output. Like it's not, it's not really, you know, very great. And um, like some of his books that are like some of the best selling books of all time. It, it's a huge list. Uh, and I think that 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 comes with the reason. And I think like I, I don't know if I could say that the Shining's the tippy tippy top. Uh, but I mean, yeah, I think it's got to be up, like up there for sure. Yeah. And then in, in terms of Kubrick's filmography, I might I think this is coming from a biased place because I love this film so much. But in my opinion, I think this is his best film. Um because I think this this movie everything comes together and his other films, everything does come together, but I think there there can be certain things where you know his artist first storyteller second approach, which I think that is the big difference in this adaptation to the novel mm. is King is a storyteller. And I, uh, I view Kubrick as a, as an artist first and then a storyteller. I think that approach can get a little too far out into the weeds. Um, I think a good example of that is 
2001. Story-wise, I don't think that's nearly as good as filmmaking achievement. Technically, that is like that deserves every bit of acclaim that it gets for being one of the greatest films of all time because it was so groundbreaking. Um, and it is a good story, but then it gets into some pretty like who fucking out there shit. Um, yeah. That's like, you know, a, just a level of esoteric that is. Um, I, I don't I don't think is it this. It's hard to say that The Shining is a, is more grounded that, uh, <laughs> out of his output, but I think it is. It's one of the more grounded films because even though it does really get out there, it does have a very clear beginning, middle, and end. There's a lot of ambiguity where I don't think you can make that argument with like 2001 or um, even A Clockwork Orange. It's like, what the fuck? By the time you get to the, to the end of that, like it's really deviated uh, a lot along the way. But again, that's visually that film is tremendous. Mm. Um, I digress. I, I think, um, I think both of these are tippy top for both of yeah. uh, these guys output. And I do think there is a relation to it because if the shining is a novel, wasn't as good as it, as it was, even though Kubrick just cherry picked, I don't think that the shining adaptation would have had, uh, would have been as, as good because the stuff he did, did cherry pick that is plucked straight from the book because there is some dialogue and whatnot that is plucked straight from the book. It's there for a reason because it's fucking good. Um, and, you know, he had a very, he being Kubrick, had a very different approach with characterization, but he did pluck these characters, you know, directly from. Um, and, and so I think that's part of the relation. And I think that that film being as celebrated as it is, you know, over half of us were like, we watched the movie first. And then I read the book. Mm -hmm. There's a reason, you know, like if that movie was hot trash, you probably maybe would have had a, you know, either a hesitancy or just an avoidance uh, of the book. Um, So I, I do think that the success of both is, is related, even though they are so different. And then there's kind of this like, legend that is Stephen King's hate of that adaptation. Um, Uh And then I hate to say it, his, um, you know, his falling short in his own uh, adaptation version. And I I don't think his miniseries is as bad as it gets credit for. I think he was unfortunately bound by the limitations of what, network television miniseries were at at that point. I think he would have done that movie and got a prestige director behind it now and they like put it like on HBO and did a miniseries that way. It would mm-hmm. fucking rule. Yeah. It, it, it unfortunately. Just, oh, sorry. You I was just going to say it was limited by technology. It was limited by the the parameters in which you had to fall under for network television. Um, like a lot of uh, the mini series that have been adapted uh, from his works that went on network TV, they kind of have that similar issue where it's like, they're just a little too, yeah. they're a little too bound by, by those parameters. And I think it, it makes them suffer. Some well, of them, and also 
most are all helmed by the same director. Like Mick Garris Mick directed Garris, yeah. not, yep. Mick Garris not only did the Stan miniseries, but he also did the Shining miniseries. He also directed the, 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 um, the Sleepwalkers. Uh, Very movie. good director, but I'm sorry. He's not, he's no Stanley Kubrick. Oh yeah. No. And also like he's so, he's, he wants to keep everything in the book. He doesn't seem to really want to like, find some way to retextualize it. Uh, but he, he, I w- I'll give him some credit. He is in, behind like the masters of horror uh, series that kind of, I would say helps revamp the horror directors, like reevaluation in the nineties by like being like, Oh, let's give these guys a fun TV movie project. But I, I, I think I definitely would say like, I think it's definitely a product of its times and of its like platform. I, I agree wholeheartedly with you, Matt, like, because uh, the nineties, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the 90s. Yeah. Okay. I, so, oh, sorry. I I know. I was just and I was just like uh that's all I was going to say. <laughs> all right. Here 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 we come to the end of our journey and then this is this is where we really want to get some spicy hot takes. Do you prefer oh. one over the other? If so, which? And I think I mean I think there's going to be some obvious answers here just yeah. from uh the nature of this conversation leading up to this. Well, I definitely digressed a lot and gave a big bulk of my exhale of both of them as artists. That's I, I get really nerdy talking about what uh, authors and artists are most intrigued by, as you kind yeah. of told by oh, my I'm... man. Yeah, uh, but I would say overall, like if we're just talking about like great gateway film and books, they're both great for both <laughs> respective artists. Like, I mean, I mean, The Shining is. They're both most famous works for both director and author. But like in terms of personal preference, like fair. like I like both equally. They both are super strong in their respective genre. But I guess in terms of just like me personally, I rewatch movies more than I reread books. So I think that's the only caveat uh, in my preference for the movie. Not in the sense that I don't like the book. I love the book. I would reread the book, but I just personally rewatch movies more than reread books. Uh, I think that's where that makes the movie a little more accessible. I think, cause I have like, I think in the end, in terms of just like, we all can agree that people know, have seen the movie more than read the book. Uh, and, and that's just something I've just observed. Uh, but that's really kind of more of a subtle, very mild, like really comparison of the two. I'll admit that. Okay. Book all the way book. Book all the way. Book. Yeah, I think to absolutely nobody's surprise, I prefer the book over the movie. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, I and I it's kind of unfair because I usually prefer the book over the movie. Um, and it, I mean, it really just kind of comes down to personal preferences at you know at the end of the day. And um, so yeah, I, I prefer the book over the movie, but that's not detracting anything from mm-hmm. the movie. I personally prefer certain things about the book, um, but at the same time, respect and appreciate what was accomplished in the movie. Um, so yeah, book a hundred percent for me though. Okay. Yeah. Those topiary animals scared me so yeah. effectively and I just, <laughs> yeah, 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 no going yeah, back. I, yeah. I'm with Craig. I don't want to like take away anything from the book by me saying I prefer, I'm only basing on that one little thing. Like, but yeah. I mean, but I, I think, yeah, the book, when it when it excels, it excels more than the movie does. And the movie, when it excels, it excels in its own regard. It's, it, oh, it's, it's the, a hard call. 
the thing in the concrete tunnel. Yeah. When I Danny crawls in we, there. We didn't talk about that, but yeah. Ugh. That's yeah. a great scene. Remind me that again. Okay. He like crawls into this concrete tunnel as part of the play structure, the playground. Uh-huh. Um, even though I think Dick told him to stay away from the playground because that's where people who have the shine had seen some stuff before. Um, so he warned him away from the playground, but there was a, a day when he's like, nah, fuck it. I'm six. I'm going to do what I want. He's I'm like going to go to the playground. The yeah. I was in the snow and he gets into this big, long tube that they have. Uh, this one's made out of concrete that they have at like most playgrounds where kids can crawl through one end is blocked by snow. And then he crawls inside and like snow st- kind of covers the other end so there's no sunlight coming through anymore oh yeah like hear something and feel something in there with him and so he has to like figure out how to get out real quickly oh so well done yeah Uh, the way that that, king describes the smell of the rotting leaves like the decay of the leaves Uh is Mm -hmm. so good yeah Woo. Amanda's going to come in here with a shocker. The movie all the way. <laughs> Despite what I've been saying this entire time. You, you surprise us all. The way I'm going. Yeah. Wow. But I, want, yeah. I want a hot take. <laughs> well, so it is it is difficult because I can, I have become much better uh, in recent times in separating bo- uh, like movie adaptations um, from their source material. And so, I can look at the two separately and find things that I like out of both of them and have my own reason for consuming the media in that particular form. Um, I think the re the, the reason why I will still say that the book is preferable to me over the movie is because the benefits that I get out of the movie, I can still get from the book. So like, it, like there, I found myself, I don't oftentimes um, get, anxious or uh, scared from reading books. Um, Like that's not usually the feeling that's going to be invoked in me, but I could get that with The Shining, Mm -hmm. uh, with the book. And um, so like the benefits that I get out of watching the movie, as far as being scared and, and, you know, having that adrenaline rush, I can still find that in the book medium. As far as like to Jimmy's point about the book, the movie being watched more than the book being reread, like that's, just going to happen because of the amount of time it takes to watch a movie over reading a book. Like, I mean, I, it took me a month to read the shining. Of course I'm doing other things than just sitting and reading it, but whereas I can read, I can rewatch the movie in one evening. So I, Mm. I'm sure that through the course of my life, I will 100% see the movie more times than I'll reread the book. Um, But I do wholeheartedly wish to reread the book again. Mm. I think this spooky season, I might reread The Shining and then go straight into Doctor Sleep. Doctor Sleep? Yes. It's a good transition, like, especially right off the bat. Like, I think it's stronger when you do them back to back. I I think you should. Uh, Okay. When we get off air, though, I I do have a a warning for you, though. But we'll talk about that as soon as. Man. I think you're going to, you need to hear it. Uh, (laughs) For me, I, I love both of these. Equally, um, that's probably a cop-out answer, an offense-sitter answer. Um, but I, I do look at these as very different things and independent from one another, even though they are from the same source material. Um, and I think that Kubrick's adaptation is so different and different enough that 
I I love it as its own thing. Um, mm. If it was, I don't know if it was a little more similar, but then he still made some really, you know, offshoot decisions like on characterization or whatever. I, I think maybe I wouldn't like it. So the fact that he's like, let's go full force and just fuck that source material. <laughs> I think kind <laughs> well, of wor- I, worked in his favor. Yeah, I get that. It's kind of a double-edged sword there is you're going to offend some people who are a big fan of the books because you are saying fuck that source material. But yeah. on the other hand, he was able to cherry pick the things he did and, and make a, a good enough story and a compelling, like a compelling enough story. And like all the cinematic aspects of that film come together enough to where you're like, yes, okay. It's still good. hundred percent. Yeah. And, and, and in an adaptation, it's like, it, it, I think one's allowed to make these change liberties as long as the execution, the payoff is good. Like, I mean, at least device an example, the same thing. At least divisive examples like Blade Runner. Like, I mean, the movie's arguably better than the book. But in this case, like, we all kind of kind of agreed that, like, the book and the movie contribute so good equally to their own regards. It's, I mean, yeah, I know. I'm usually a wishy-washy person when it comes to stuff like this. So I, I felt very reluctant just to pick, like, one side. But, like, uh, I, re- I really can't. <laughs> and I, and I, I refuse to because I, I do love them both so, so much equally. Um, and... For, you know, all the, you know, for a lot of different reasons, everything we mentioned earlier, um, and both have brought a ton of joy to my life, uh, because mm-hmm. I've now read The Shining a few times, and um, I feel like every time I read it, I gleam something different from it, or there's there's something, you know, else. And same thing with watching it, though. Like, you could watch yeah. that movie so many times, and then there's certain things that you'll pick up on. Uh, whether it's in like the weird layered sound design. So I think, you know, they're both just really well executed uh, mm-hmm. pieces of art. And I, um, and I adore them both. All right. Any final thoughts? Cause otherwise I'm going to uh, make like Jack's ax and uh, cut this thing off. Mm. Yeah. Just, Gross. just, uh, <laughs> just read, just read the book, watch the movie. I mean, kind of, and and no. Oh, yeah, like, if you're a psychopath and you've been listening to this and you haven't seen or read either one of these. Spoiler alert. Yeah, what are you doing with <laughs> your life? I'm also gonna recommend people to even watch the documentary Room 237. I got it right this time. Didn't say 238. Are you sure? Are you <laughs> sure it's not 238? I don't yeah, know. I, I would I'd recommend that. I think uh, another thing is there's there's really interesting doc footage that uh Stanley Kubrick's daughter shot of yes, him yes. on set. Um, that's fascinating as it's, it's a little upsetting because he's a total fucking, uh, maniacal, like Rick. dick. Uh, yeah. It, but I mean, you could also see that he's a genius. Um, and then read Dr. Sleep, watch Dr. Sleep. Um, yeah, I need I, to, all I, I will need say to is that the film adaptation, uh, Mike Flanagan, who is now kind of like the, one of the premier people that has uh, adapted King works. He somehow managed to make it both a sequel to mm-hmm. the uh, shining book and the shining film. Uh, wow. I was which curious is, because of the very different endings in the two mediums. I was like, how, how are they, they going to do it? For yeah. The, like, yeah, it, that's cool. It's, I look uh, forward to that. It's very clever. It's, it's very, yeah. I, and I think it didn't get enough credit. It, it came out and it kind of flew under the radar. didn't do well mm-hmm. at the box office. And um, 
One thing I would say is there's a director's cut. I would watch mm-hmm. that. It's considerably longer, but I think it, having read the book, it, uh, I think tracks better. Yeah. Anyways. I think, I think of all like that craze of the legacy movie, I think this is, I, I, th- I like this take, I would say of like, in terms of like, just sort of like a movie, that's a movie sequel to the shining with as well as a book sequel. Like yeah. it's yeah. It acknowledges the past, but also tries to not, dwell too much in the waters i guess i mean with i i mostly just want to watch it because you and mcgregor is in it (gasps) i have a man crush on that you should have led with that and you know it (laughs) yeah he plays danny oh man yeah Yeah. okay the casting's great the casting's great yeah i'm excited by the prospect of this being a a series potentially because i enjoy having homework apparently Mm -hmm. and uh i want to do more with this because yeah there's, you know, there, there is no so opinion quite like uh, a a book lover's opinion on the film adaptation. Why don't we, for the yeah. next one, we yeah. can do uh, we can do uh, book versus film for the Dark Tower, and I can just shit <sighs> on the Dark Tower book or movie the entire time. I and will, I can shit on the book. I, I will just take finish a hot, it. steaming verbal dump on the fucking movie that shit movie I, anyway. i've got the next two planned out i i've, I've told a man about this i <sighs> would love 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 to talk about um a silver linings playbook mm, and i would I, love uh, to talk yeah. about perks of being a wallflower because hot take <gasps> love the movie didn't like the book Okay. Okay. So different. I've, been, I've yeah. been prepared for like two years yeah. Matt. come on yeah, yeah you it. have let's i still have it. to do the homework for perks of a wallflower yeah. let's do it all right. Well, it was great talking to y'all, and uh, yeah, let's reconvene for another one of one of these uh, adaptation wars. All right. Thanks, All right. everybody. Alrighty, cool. Thanks. Bye. All right, nerds. That was a long one, but I really hope you enjoyed it. Obviously, we had a lot to say about both the novel and the film. And I mean, what a novel and what a film. I there's I think that was why there was so much to say is because both are just absolutely great in their own right. And even though some of us had to lean one way or the other, I think we can all agree that Stephen King's amazing novel, maybe his best work. And I, I'm going to actually walk that back. I said I couldn't quite decide whether I thought that was his best book of all time. While we were recording, I I do think it is. I think it is his best work. It's not my favorite King novel. It's probably number two. But I think, you know, in the end, that's going to be the thing he's going to be the most remembered for. Along with, you know, It, Pet Cemetery, The Stand, novels like that. And I think, likewise for Kubrick, I think it is rightly in the upper echelon of his work. So I think we can all agree they're both incredible for what they are and you can enjoy both. You don't have to be Team King or Team Kubrick. I hope that you really enjoyed this. We're going to do more of these in the future because I think there are some other interesting adaptations that can be discussed in comparison to the original literary source material. If you have any episodes that you want to hear Adaptation Wars on, let me know. You can do so by following me on social media at nerds underscore opinions on both Twitter and Instagram and nerds with opinions on Facebook. 
Also, if you're digging the podcast, if you're on Spotify, rate this podcast and make sure you're giving me a follow on Apple Podcasts. Rate and review. Give me a follow. And that'll really, really help me out. I want to thank you for listening to the episode, and I want to thank my esteemed panel of guests, Jimmy Levins, Rachel Herzog, Craig Bradford, and Amanda Murphy for joining me and talking a little bit of Shining, Rad Rom, Rad Rom. With that, I must bid you adieu. As always, I'm your host, Matt Holbin, and I've always been the caretaker here, and you're listening to Nerds with Opinions. (laughs) 